Hello and welcome to the first official episode of Citizens History Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 1. And right off the bat, this is a bit of an odd episode because we recorded this one outside. We had an excellent dialogue with our good friend and colleague from Quincy University, Dr. Neil Wright, Associate Professor of Political Science. We began recording uh, the episode at Forgatonia Brewery in Macomb, Illinois on July 16th. But the brewery closed before we finished our discussion, so we removed to Neil's backyard where we continued to have a superb discussion about the Second Amendment. We talked in particular about a book called Armed Citizens by Noah Schusterman, which I will introduce in more detail in the episode itself. And we had a wide-ranging discussion about the historical development of militias, government power, and the Second Amendment itself, as well as the contested relationship between individual rights and government power. That being said, uh, we need to apologize for the less than pristine audio quality of this recording. I tried to edit out truck noises or lengthy pauses, etc., but oftentimes you will hear people in the background as well as cars and the occasional siren. Uh, that's just life with a uh, public discussion. We plan to limit such outdoor discussions in future episodes, but it was such a nice day, and we academics really cherish the opportunity to crawl out of our caves and squint in the sunlight every now and again, uh, so that's what we were doing with this episode. There are two other topics I want to note before we start the episode. First, you will hear Neil reference anarchism from time to time throughout our discussion. That's because Neil would most closely align himself with anarchism on the spectrum of political beliefs, meaning he disbelieves in hierarchical government and advocates for a voluntary cooperative society with no coercion involved. Second, listeners will hear all of us use the term republicanism frequently in this episode. And I want to clarify that when we say republicanism, republic, or republicans, we are absolutely not referring to the modern-day Republican Party of the United States, the GOP. I think I refer to the Republican and Democratic Party once, but all the other times uh, we're talking about the idea of republicanism, which we explore to some extent in this episode. It's an ancient complex and highly debated topic, but in its most elemental sense, what we're talking about is a human society or a republic that is organized around representative government, uh, personal citizenship, and the direct interaction between the two. Typically, uh, republicanism relies on self-rule or the consent of the governed, though we discuss to some extent the internal contradictions of such a phrase, perhaps. And republicanism generally values individual rights and the idea that citizens of a state owe some form of allegiance or participation in that state to maintain order or preserve the public good. There are numerous iterations of republicanism extending as far back as ancient Greece, and we can't possibly discuss them all in detail in one episode, so we limit most of our discussion to the limits of American republicanism which is established on the ideas of balanced government, separation of powers, the sovereignty of the people, personal citizenship, and personal liberties. Most importantly for this episode, the Second Amendment, the obligations of militia service, and the right to own weapons. I think that's all the context you need for this episode, so hopefully you can enjoy our discussion and have your mind stimulated despite all the background noise. Here's episode one.
going to discuss a book today that was my idea, so I hope it goes well, called Armed Citizens, The Road from Ancient Rome to the Second Amendment. This is by a historian named Noah Schusterman, who uh, is associate professor of history at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and the previous author of The French Revolution, Faith, Desire, and Politics. So this book takes a very broad approach to tracing the uh, historical context of why the Second, Mem- Second Amendment is the way it is. I think a lot of the historiography of the Second Amendment begins with the Second Amendment and sort of traces it out to where we are today and trying to understand how gun violence affects America. Schusterman takes the opposite approach. He starts way back with Caesar and the Roman Empire and builds all the way up to the Constitutional Convention to try to understand what is going on in the minds of the founders when they write this law. Uh, so, how about I read what I think is the thesis, and you guys sort of critique my idea of what I think the thesis is. Uh, now, I, I made a promise in our introductory episode to try to be as accessible as possible and stay away from grand academic posturing. I'm going to break that rule right off the bat with this long-winded, run-on sentence uh, that I, I tried to contain the entirety of this book in. The founders who designed the Second Amendment did not intend that all citizens should be armed, but only the most appropriate citizens, meaning free, white, land-holding men. And they drew from a long heritage of pro-militia, anti-standing army ideology in which militia, militia forces were prized because they were regulated bodies of armed men that were politically located between a professional army on one end, which threatened freedom if it was taken too far, and the absence of any military at all on the other end, which portended invasion and defeat. So the Second Amendment is sort of the embodiment of this long history of militias that existed in uh, old world Europe, and the founders are interested in having an armed group of men in the United States, but not like a standing army that might result in tyranny in monarchy. So the Second Amendment is kind of their solution to these problems. Also, the Second Amendment is not intended to arm everyone. They would want to arm every single person in America. They want certain guys in the militia, responsible, landholding, that have some sort of connection to the republic. Because otherwise, they might go for the highest bidder. But if they're invested in the republic, then they're going to fight for the country rather than against it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the overarching idea, I think, going on with Schuster. I agree. I agree. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, uh, so, can we start? Perhaps I, li- I liked your idea about. Can we start with the actual text of the. Well, first of all, Article 1, Section 8 in the Constitution, talking about what Congress, what power Congress has. Absolutely. And then, equally important, Article 2, Section 2. Sure. Uh, I, I think that's excellent. Okay. Do you have it? Yeah. So, you go. <laughs> so I think that... Let's just, let's just take what... I, Article 1 and Article 2 have a lot of overlapping and some might say conflicting imperatives, right? And Neil, you can, I'm sure, speak to this uh, a little bit better. But the relevant sections for the militia, for Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, Congress has the power 
quote, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions, and to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Okay, so that's what the Constitution allows to Congress. Now, regarding the executive, right, regarding the president, Article 2, Section 2 says, the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment. So that beginning part kind of tells us that when and if the militias need to be called forth in service of the Union, right, in service of the United States, that the president shall command. So, Neil, how, how do you interpret that? Because in, in some ways you could read that as conflicting duties. Say it one more time. Say it one more time. So, for Congress, yeah. Congress can uh, has the power to provide for calling yeah. forth the militia. Yeah. So when exactly are we going to uh, call forth the militia? When is right. it actually necessary? Right. So Congress has the power to call it forth, but uh, you know, yeah. the president shall be the commander when the militia is called forth. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, I, I know in the text it mentions the Militia Act, which sort of yeah. tosses the sort of the power from the Congress to the president to give them the authority in times of emergency to do that. You know what I mean? But yeah, there there is, and I, I, there's a part that we, we didn't read there in um, you know Article Two, the, the first the first clause or the first section of, um, of Article Two, the vesting clause adds a whole other layer of like ambiguity that it does, doesn't really come into the text at all. But the, the question of whether or not executive power can be bounded at all in an emergency. And this is something that, you know, even though uh, Hamilton and Madison are, are writing together as Publius in the Federalist Papers, you know, when it comes um, around to the neutrality uh, proclamation, the controversy around that, the Pacificus Helvidius debates, they take different sides. And Hamilton makes this argument that the, the way that executive power is vested in Article 2, it says, you know, the, the executive power, uh, in Article 1 it says, um, like, all legislative power herein granted, yada, 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 goes to the Congress, and in Article 2 it says that, you know, uh, the executive power, without any qualification, goes to the President. And Hamilton seizes on this kind of immediately to say that you can't predict the kind of needs that you're going to have to provide for the common defense. It makes no sense. Right. So even though so I, I find the parsing of it a little, you know, uh, there, there is that ambiguity there. And I really think that there was a, a pretty concerted design on the part of folks like like uh, Gubernur Morris, like like Hamilton, to make sure that this executive had effectively like royal prerogative to where when there's a real crisis, whatever happens, you know where the buck's going to stop. You know, the yeah, executive's yeah. going to be able to do that. Right. I mean, I think you point out some good, you know, some, some good like technical ways in which you can find some kind of gray areas, but that's where I would like look to to see the kind of constitutional language that could completely 
throw up in the air the sort of the balance of power mm-hmm. and and what what yeah. the what the the military power really looks like. And it's one that I think was intentionally put there by people that that wanted to have a very very strong and sort of a standing army centered um, sort of military strategy going forward. Hamilton in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we have a constitutional scholar here. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to add, Roger? Well, only that I, I wanted to pick Neil's brain more on... So, the first draft of the Constitution, before the Bill of Rights was added... Yeah, uh, the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Gets, gets into the militias a lot more, and apparently yeah. a lot of it dropped out when the Second Amendment came online, right? I know a lot of it is still contained within the Constitution. Well, just, well, so, that, I mean, at the, um, are you talking about that section of the book where he's, he's talking about the, the uh, whenever the Bill of Rights was being debated yes. in the first Congress? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, well, when it, and, yeah, so th- those, are, those are kind of the, those are, that's a critical distinction that really isn't, I think, clear in, in the text of, like, hey, there's this document the U.S. Constitution that was ratified didn't include a Bill of Rights. Like that Second Amendment's not in there, and there wasn't much of a discussion about sort of the differences in sort of the, the philosophical or the political philosophical framework that guided, you know, uh, Publius and that guided, you know, the framers such as you can you know, put them into a coherent vision. Right. And then what was largely anti-federalist complaints, you know, uh, trying to secure what liberties that could be secured, sort of after the fact. Um, I think that the, the, the part that you're mentioning, I can't, I, I can't remember. You know, uh, I don't have on the top of my head the uh, any any content. That's what was the conversation at the Constitutional Convention about any language to do with with militias. Um, but that would have been, you know, separate from sort of the there was there was I think discussion of trying to prohibit standing armies. I think was the thing that they were talking about in the Schusterman book, right? Um, yeah. He's, he spent some time on that. Um, I'd like to I'd like to go into the the actual text of the amendment then. Okay. The so a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So Shusterman in his book says explicitly he's not going to get into the whole comma controversy. Mm-hmm. Where are the commas? Uh, which clause is more important, the, 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 uh, the first one or the second one? So notice, the, the first clause is the well-regulated militia, right? Being necessary to the security of a free state. Comma. And then the second clause is the thing that we focus on most today. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So... Before we go into um, the criticisms, Jamat, how about you go into a little bit of a summary? Sure. And I'm happy to pick up with, you know, the ancient Roman history, with Machiavelli, with Harrington, and so forth. But and, and I like that you bring up the actual text of the Second Amendment because, uh, and I was searching for it in my notes, uh, I couldn't find it, Schusterman actually brings up that that's not how the Second Amendment originally looked. It was originally much longer and sort of referenced this idea that all citizens sort of have a responsibility to participate in the militia for the good of the, the nation and that uh, we're doing this to avoid a standing army. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of this language gets dropped in favor of what is a more nebulous 
yeah. amendment now. And as I said earlier, the a lot of the historiography, what little of it I've read about the Second Amendment, really focuses on the second half and moves forward in time, all about individual ownership. Schusterman is more concerned with the first half of the amendment and ultimately argues that when the Founding Fathers wrote this, they're much more concerned with the first half of the amendment than they are the second half. We can debate that later on. So right, specifically, does it grant an individual right to bear arms? Or yeah. is this only within the context of a well-regulated militia? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think we should start off by sort of defining what a militia is. It's a group of part-time soldiers rather than permanent profession professionals. Uh, there's sort of a, a long history of this within uh, European society and probably other parts of the world in, in which, uh, uh, of which I'm not as familiar with. And the Second Amendment sort of is an outgrowth of this long history. Uh, and to, to quote from pages three and four, when the authors of the Bill of Rights declared that a well-regulated militia was necessary for the security of a free state, they also endorsed a tradition of Republican thought that had elevated militias to a place of honor and glory well above what their lackluster military achievements would suggest. So that's partly what's going on here is not so much a discussion of the uh, military effectiveness of militias as more of like the ideological purchase that they gain within the mind of your average Republican citizen. It doesn't matter what my government does, I can take up arms against them one day if I need to. And uh, th I think the founders were very much playing into that. They also believe that part-time soldiers or, or would uh, mold into better citizens, that military service would... Uh, shape better citizens, make them more disciplined, make them more in tune with the republic. Um, and that no state could ever be free without some sort of military force. On the other hand, they want to avoid a standing army. They look to Julius Caesar as being like this foundational problem, right, in, in world history, that he sort of overthrows the greatest republic the world had ever known. And uh, they want to avoid that problem. So I think Schusterman argues that the Second Amendment is itself a combination of the colonial history of militias. We'll get into that in a moment. Militias in America look very different than they do in Europe. Uh, many of them are uh, established primarily for fighting and killing Indians, and especially in the South, containing slave rebellions. So there is an inherently racial aspect to American militias. On the other hand, that's not to say that militia traditions themselves are inherently racist. There are two things going on here. We need a militia rather than a standing army to avoid tyranny. We need a militia, specifically in America, to contain non-white people. I think these are the two legs of his, his argument here. So with that, we can launch into Chapter 1. Uh, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon. So uh, the Founding Fathers... Uh, definitely see Julius Caesar as like the ultimate villain of history, it seems like, at least from Schusterman's perspective. And uh, on the other hand, they really value Cincinnatus, who makes himself available to the Republic when, it's, when he's needed, and then he rescinds power and goes back to his farm uh, after he's done with the, uh, what was it, the Second Punic War? I can't remember which war that he was fighting in. I'm, yeah, I'm terrible with ancient history. He did it twice. So, according to Livy, in his, uh, um, in his history of ancient Rome, <clears throat> you know, centuries before Julius Caesar, or a cent yeah. okay, you've got yeah, you've got 
one man called out to be dictator. Dictator did not have the connotations that uh, that we have. Uh, to be dictator meant in the time of crisis, seizing, holding executive power, holding command of the army, uh, and doing it for a prescribed period. In this case, one year. In Cincinnatus's case, it was it was extremely short indeed, uh, and. Perhaps he could have retained that power and ruled as a king, and he relinquished that power, returned to his farms, and thereby gets idolized by many Romans and by uh, many people all the way from then to our founders. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of the kind of balance that the founders are purportedly looking for. We need power on one hand to repulse invasions, um, but we also need to relinquish that power in order to prevent tyranny. And Cincinnatus is like the ultimate example uh, of this guy that that steps forward, uses his power for the good of the republic, and then uh, uh, receives again. The next example that the founders are really looking at, according to this chapter, is Hannibal. Hannibal uh, is a in battle against Rome very frequently. He often relies on mercenaries, and it's the mercenaries that are like the downfall of his campaign, right? Because he can't afford to pay them, they become very expensive. I don't really know enough about this time period to, to, to fact check on that, but uh, it looks like mercenaries were uh, super problematic because they couldn't always be relied upon as a professional military force. Yeah, and in the ancient Roman context, it's a very... Uh it's difficult to tell the difference sometimes between uh, citizen soldiers and then mercenaries. When yeah. you know people who began as ordinary citizens and farmers who are joining the army to fight in Gaul or whatever end up developing more loyalty to their commander than to the state itself. Yes. Than to the common. Yes, and that's what they see in Caesar. When he crosses the Rubicon, the soldiers are on Caesar's side. They're not on the side of Rome. And so I think... And it's important to note that, that with previous uh, iterations of this, uh, Marius, for, uh, for example, that there had been warlords previous to Caesar who had done the same thing. And so lots of thinkers of early modern and modern Europe looked back to say, oh yeah, definitely... It, it, it all started well before Caesar, that this, this process by which these soldiers, uh, because they were getting paid by, by their general, uh, you know, he's the guy. Uh, a really, really famous and beautiful and, and very disturbing uh, uh, passage in, in Lucan's Pharsalia says something like this. And this would be Gibbon's translation, which I know a lot of people have problems with, but... It goes something like this: If our general is uh, leads us to the to the banks of the Tiber, we are prepared to trace out his camp. Whatsoever walls he is determined to level to the ground, our hands are ready to work the engines. Nor shall we hesitate, should the name of the devoted city be Rome itself. So basically, willing to pull the house down out of loyalty to your commander. Uh, knowing that there's not really going to be much of a state left after that. All right. So I think to kind of summarize this chapter, the founders pull three major lessons from the ancient period that are influencing the way that they're thinking when they're designing the Constitution. Uh, They learn from Hannibal that mercenary soldiers are inefficient defenders of national security. Um, 
they learn the power of citizen soldiers from Caesar, but they also see the pitfalls of personal allegiance over allegiance to the state. And they also uh, really strive to emulate Cincinnatus as a guy who takes power, uses it only in emergencies, and then relinquishes it. What do you guys think about... I mean, the founders are crazy about the, the Roman period. They, they reference it all the time. When they, when they write letters, like, like Cato's letters, they're constantly using uh, pseudonyms from this period. Do you think that the ancient period has this much influence on the Second Amendment? and the way that the founders are thinking about the Constitution? Well, it seemed like just on the level of archetypes. You know what I mean? Whether or not they're historically accurate, a little bit here nor there, there's a kind of, you know, uh, reputation that, you know, the cachet that the name Caesar has and mm-hmm. the name Cincinnatus has. And that becomes, you know, kind of a rhetorical, like, move that they make. Yeah. And I think it, it, I mean, you see with pseudonyms, like you're saying, it does seem like it be a key part, at least, you know, uh, the, among the political class or people that are talking about these things, this is a language that they can use to articulate you know, their views. So I, yeah, I, I, that's probably separate from you know the accuracy, which again, like Patrick, you would have to speak to that whether or not they're understanding these things you know accurately. Was this the real Cincinnati? Is this the real Caesar? Are those fair accounts of what they did, what they were after? But it definitely everybody kind of seemed to agree that that's the, the gist of the characters that they're comparing there, and what's what's good about the model of Cincinnati compared to the, the model of Caesar seems to be somewhat agreed upon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Schusterman or Schusterman, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. I, I don't know either. Uh, we he, apologize to Dr. Schusterman. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he mentions a, a, a wonderful anecdote. Uh, this, is, this is Jefferson relating <laughs> yes. long yeah, after yeah. He's, uh, a conversation he had with Hamilton, who is, of course, his hated enemy. Uh, and he claims that, according to Hamilton, Caesar was the guy. Now, as far as we know, there's, there's not much other evidence other than Jefferson's word that the, this was the person that, uh, that Hamilton idolized. But we do have other evidence of, you know, Hamilton could very well have become a Caesar-type figure. Yeah. Uh, and you can probably speak more to this. But I want to, I, I want to bring up the order of, the, of Cincinnati, yeah. right? That, do you want to say a few words on no, that? No, no, you, no, you go ahead. Well, I, mean, I, I, I know very little about it, but so that Washington and many other veterans of the, of the War for Independence uh, were a part of this... Uh, Effectively, society, mm-hmm. uh, society of the Cincinnatus, and you had to be a veteran to have done you. you and and these people lived and breathed the ideal or the archetype, of, uh, you know, of this figure, who we only know through living. We only know through the, the, this ancient, or, or we know most of what we think we know through this one source. Now, that said, it's important to note that yes, it's not just in the context of the Second Amendment that our founders are looking back to ancient Rome. Yeah. Uh, Madison and particularly Adams are looking back and they're reading their Polybius very carefully, right? And this is, this is, one, of the, this is one of the things that, uh, that casts such long shadows for better or for worse uh, in the American theory of mixed government. They're picking this up from Polybius. And they're also reading their Machiavelli. They're also reading their uh, other medieval thinkers and early modern thinkers, Harrington, 
who are um, at a point removed or directly from Polybius really imbibing these things. So, yes, it's fair to say that that classical influence is is everywhere. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that not only on the level of architects, but elsewhere. So now we're eating pizza as we discuss uh, Hamilton and Jefferson. I, I want to add in at least the... Um, the historians of the early republic that I've heard speak on the anecdote you're talking about often say Hamilton probably just said that to get Jefferson spun up. You know, we have little evidence that he actually admired Caesar or wanted to emulate Caesar, but he knew that Jefferson hated him, so he wanted to say something that would anger Jefferson because <laughs> these two have a deep-seated uh, enmity for each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it fits in with the idea that he, he, he wanted expansive executive power. Yes. You know, and... Uh, Julius Caesar is an obvious kind of exaggeration of that, but I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard to, I think, get the true Hamilton in some ways. Yeah. Um, I've never been satisfied that I've gotten it. Yeah, Hamilton and Jefferson probably the most inscrutable of, of the founding fathers. But um, anyway, moving on to chapter two. Uh, Machiavelli retires to his estate in 1513. Uh, Schusterman claims that Machiavelli initiated the intellectual tradition that held that citizens should be armed even by their own leaders, that mercenaries could not be trusted, and that all soldiers should be citizens. So most of us know Machiavelli because of the prince, and here's how you should wield power, absolutely. But Schusterman says there's a lesser-known, lesser-studied sort of uh, uh, thread of Machiavellian study uh, about citizen soldiers and militias and how vital they are to maintaining power in a society without completely isolating people. Allow them to participate in their own defense, then they're going to be more dedicated to the republic. And he claims that you know, other intellectual thinkers down the line, especially in the English tradition that lead to the American colonies, really buy into this and they're really influenced by Machiavelli's uh, uh, theories. Yeah, and just to add on to that, the understanding where, Machi where and when Machiavelli lived is really critical for understanding his arguments. He lived at a time, this is the very late 15th century and early 16th century. He lived and wrote at a time when, certainly from Florence north, and really the entire Italian peninsula is undergoing these incredible wrenching transformations. This is a kind of a world where city-states had predominated. You know, certainly in central and northern Italy especially, city-states had been, had been it uh, for a very long time. Uh, I mean, you can still go to Italy today and go, forget about, I mean, of course, Florence and Venice and Milan and all these other major towns. But even if you go into some podunk, beautiful town that you've never heard of and that almost nobody has ever heard of, there will often be a state archives there. Like it was, it was, you know, still from the medieval period when this one small hill town was effectively its own state. When Machiavelli is writing in the late 15th and early 16th century, this world is shattering, right? And so the French are invading Italy, the Spanish are invading Italy, packs of mercenaries are hiring themselves out to whoever bids the highest. 
German, like not only Italians, but Germans are coming down. English are coming down. There's a famous Englishman named John Hawkwood who led a mercenary band and one week he's working for one city and then the other week he gets a higher bid and he just switches sides. And so in all of this, Machiavelli is just struggling, saying what, how can we regain our lost greatness? And of course, very quickly, the Medici would overthrow, would become a little mini kingship, a little a mini monarchy, uh, where it had been a republic. But it's important to note that Machiavelli's overriding uh, priority in all of his writings is how can Italy recover its lost greatness? How can we get the Spanish and the English barbarians out of Italy? Uh, how can we get these mercenaries who are just tearing everything apart uh, out of our hair? Because we're just we're dependent on them because we're too weak. And if we had citizen soldiers, then we would be able to then would, we would be able to not be dependent on all of these foreigners. Uh, so, it, so do you buy the argument in this chapter? Mostly, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, this, it, it, it's what Machiavelli said on numerous occasions. And yes, I, while most of us know Machiavelli in a, in a more negative way, we know him via the prince, or even if we've just heard the adjective Machiavellian, you know, that's, you know, he, he is a byword for intrigue. He's a byword for unscrupulousness. But his main, the body of the, bo the main body of his work, is about republicanism. It's a, it's about, you know, how do we, how do we strike the necessary balance? In his own way, he's hankering after mixed government, in the same way that our founders are in a completely different geopolitical context, of course. I think it's very similar. You know what I mean? I think the argument that, like, you know, Pocock gives of, you know, that, yeah. that Machiavelli has this formative influence on sort of the design of the Constitution, I think it's fair. Yeah. And I think it's also a good... By the way, you're talking about Pocock, the Machiavellian yeah. moment. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Great sorry. book. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Highly recommend it. Um, but I think that there's, there's something that, again, Schusterman doesn't really reckon with, with what Machiavelli is doing, which is, he's, you know, he's... In, in political philosophy, at least, he's often pointed out as sort of the first modern, and he's sort of taking his aim at the ancients, and particularly the sort of the ancient normative foundations to politics. You know, the idea that the the aim of politics, like you get from with Aristotle, it's not just about you know uh, peace. It's not just about stability. It's not about affluence. Right? It's about the good life. Like it's about being virtuous. You know, and that's a word that Machiavelli and Prince and elsewhere kind of reconceives as sort of a, a tool of power. You know what I mean? Everything for Machiavelli, and this is what I think there's a, sort of a bastardization uh, of the use of the word republicanism whenever you compare it to sort of its, uh, sort of you know, some, some of the ancient notions of it. I think it's probably fair to even put that on Rome too, but if you look at like maybe some of the writings of Aristotle, even the, the if, you, if you take you know, Plato's Republic and his idea of, of what sort of the, the citizen soldiers of the Calopolis you know, might look like, you know, he gives some kind of similar arguments, like here's going to be some lean sort of mean dogs that, you know, nobody's going to want to fight with. And they're going to be very good, you know, at protecting what's theirs in their homeland. You know, there's th that argument doesn't originate necessarily with Machiavelli, but I do think what, what does originate with Machiavelli is sort of the, the cynical defense of this, of saying that it's like, listen, this can actually be, like, tactically valuable. 
You know what I mean? And I think that's ultimately, you know, in my reading of the discourses and, and, and of, of, of Machiavelli's Prince, I think that they cohere in that kind of way and that you can see the ways in which, you know, on the one hand, a republic, if it's if it's structured in the way that you're like like our modern one does, of like using the tumult as like Machiavelli talks about it, the energy of the the the, the clashing classes and things like that in a society. If you can structure things to use that for the advantage, you can keep the poor poor and desperate and willing enough to fight, but also citizen soldiers that are going to want to defend their own. You can use that energy for stability, and that's not contrary to the idea of really extreme executive power. You know, I mean, you can have these, particularly in founding periods or times of a need to return to order or things like this, something like a Lincoln, say, in the American context, somebody that, that can use really extraordinary extra-legal power, something like a Caesar might salivate over or something like that kind of an opportunity. A republic actually provides uh, an opportunity for both of those things. I think that's very different from the sort of the old normative defense of... And, and I don't think you get any of that sort of... The, the sense of the normative value of republican life. Um, from Schusterman, although I do think it's there in the anti-federalist defense um, and even the Jeffersonian defense of what he's understanding, you know, the, the, the virtues of a militia, the virtues of, you know, smaller Republican government to be. Machiavelli is what... Go ahead, go ahead. The Republican life you're referencing, is that from Plato's Republic? No, no, no I just mean like, you know, a, a, a society that is, you know, kind of authentically governed by the people okay. and serving the people. Okay. Um, do you have a historical example that you might point to specifically? Authentically doing that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that I think if you my now this is not something that you know anybody else probably believes, but in my reading of, of sort of Republican thought, Republicanism terminates in anarchism. That ultimately, you know, so you get like the anti-federalists. Um, you know how, how there something like standing army and those sorts of things are anathema. You see in many of the uh, the anti-federalist papers the claim that you know if you can't have people consensually obeying a law. It's a tyrannical law. If you need somebody to coerce people to follow the law, that's a clear sign that you don't have a free... I mean, what is that, though, but anarchy? It's, it's essentially the, the idea that, the, that you know, the, 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 and whoever you're going to define as the real humans in the environment, right? Of course, in, in the South, it's going to be different than what they consider it to be in the North, but um, the, the idea that among real men, you know what I mean, you don't, you don't exercise coercion. There's something uh, immoral about that. No, I don't think that is ever existed. All right, we have been chased away from the brewery uh, for discussing the Second Amendment. I'm just kidding. Uh, it shut down on us. So now uh, Neil has been so kind to let us retire to his backyard. And uh, we're wrapping up our thoughts on Machiavelli. Uh, again, often best remembered for his uh, very aggressive take on centralized power. But there is a hidden republicanism at the heart of his text, argues uh, Schusterman. So... Uh, there should be a certain group of armed citizens, and there should definitely be unarmed citizens, generally the more poor uh, that can't necessarily be counted on to be the most loyal to the republic. And Schusterman argues that this idea is very influential on uh, Republican thinkers on down the road, especially when it comes to the creation of militias in North America. Chapter 3 is a bit of an odd moment, but an important one, I think. The fall of La Rochelle in 1628. On November 1st, uh, this was a heavily armed city that had been under siege for a long time on the coast of France. King Louis XIII and his minister, Armand Jean Duplessis, I don't know how to say, I don't know how to say it, Duplessis. 
Cardinal Richelieu is what we'll call him. Am I saying that correctly? Is it Richelieu? I don't trust my French enough. Okay. Um, but they take over this fort that, or, or city that's been holding out for a long time. And the reason why this is important, because one, it's a Catholic king triumphing over Protestant forces. And this is going to set us off down the road of Protestants and Catholics arming each other for centuries, uh, which has already been happening up to this point, but it's going to matter even more in the future. Another reason it's very important is because it represents a triumph of centralized power. King Louis XIII um, comes into power. He's part of a much longer process in the 17th century of uh, the king gaining more power than the nobility and therefore gaining more power over the military. And this is a part of a larger story that military historians uh, talk about, sort of the military turn. Um, we could argue until the cows come home about exactly when that happens and, and its import. But suffice it to say for even the most basic listener that somewhere in the 1600s and definitely by the mid-1700s, um, governments, whether they be monarchical or parliamentary, have really solidified power through increased militaries and increased technology that those militaries are using. And the fall of La Rochelle represents that triumph. And at the same time, England takes a look at this from across the channel and says, we are not like them. Uh, and, and this is really important for Schutemann's argument. He is arguing that England in particular is trying to define itself against France. France has a powerful monarchy. We have a balanced government where the parliament has more power. France has a big military. It's very expensive. It's very oppressive. We have a volunteer, noble, uh, Republican militia, and that it makes us better than France. So this victory and the overall process of centralization of power in France is very important for the Republican riders in England uh, at this time. What do you guys think? Is the siege and fall of La Rochelle as important as Schusterman says? Uh, the contrast between France and uh, and England is going to be one of the mainstays of the argument. So yes. yeah, it's it's uh, and it's worth noting that at the same time as the English are um, imbibing these ideas. Some of the greatest thinkers are, are following Machiavelli, right? And we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to them soon. Americans, too, you know, the, the, the English in North America, who still do consider themselves natural-born Englishmen, uh, are imbibing these ideas, too. And we need to point out the irony right away that at the same time as we are decrying standing armies, it is the French standing army that comes to the aid of the revolutionaries. Absolutely. And so there, there, there's that irony that running through that that we, we can't ignore. It's a, a um, yeah, a really important, a, a really important um, realist point alongside the ideal point of the uh, of the militias being being the best. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting. You know, the, these kind of vignettes because the the importance of like political culture you know like you know again it's, it's aside from the truth of the matter or the the effective like you know um power of, of a militia there's something about this mode of what is a quintessential governmental function like a government is going to have to exercise power that's what it is it exercises coercive power within boundaries to protect them from external things to secure internal order that happens everywhere 
right? Um, but this is like a a model, you know, that that seems, you know, you, we're you, we're getting a good account of, you know, why this model was so persuasive as like a desirable characteristic of a political culture, you know. And again, like thinking of how true this was to actual English militias, how Republican were they? Probably not that much, you know, especially judged by what, you know, say the, the you know, the 1776, you know, militias m- might have, you know, might have evaluated them on. But that's kind of here, neither here nor there. There's something about the vision of like the, the, the polity that, that, uh, that, that seemed to be persuasive in, in that society, and especially, of course, in contrast to the French. But um, I, like, I like that element because I think it goes a long way to sort of giving an account even up to the present. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much this comes to the fore in our discussions of, you know, the the the, the value of um, the Second Amendment. But I'm I'm from a rural area, and you know, I think the main practical reason that my, you know, uncles and grandfather and all, everybody loved having guns is because they loved to hunt. You know what I mean? We, there weren't wasn't much crime or anything around to where they really felt like they need to defend the home. But there was also some, you know, inchoate sense of like that this is an important part of manliness. You know, and in a, in, a, in a good and a bad way, probably. But like that, that, that somebody that is, you know, a um, a citizen, you know, a, 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 that there's a role for the individual within a, a political community that is made possible by a militia that just simply isn't there otherwise. There's something about sort of the 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 reality that you can experience in the world by exercising the defense of your community through the militia or through the home or whatever that. There's an important psychological element element to that with identity, with political culture that I think is I wish was was you know it's a short book you can't blame Schusterman for this but it's like that is I think a cool thread that I would like to see expanded on more because I think that is a lot of maybe what gives an account for the enduring sort of power of the Second Amendment in you know American political culture today even when as you know Schusterman notes later it's like. It doesn't. It seems completely out of step. We don't understand the historical like significance of the militia system, what it meant, what it was there for, or anything like that. There is some just vibe, you know, that the um, that 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 uh, institution kind of. I think there's a resonance, uh, maybe not with the institution, but with the the, the Second Amendment that is supportive of that institution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I will just take this moment to add in a point we've already made: is that by the time we get to the Second Amendment, there's a reason why militia shows up before individual ownership. And it's because the founders were a part of a tradition that we're discussing here of like the militia is the mainstay of the, the state, the main military power, and that's why it's important. Yeah, when the Constitution, before the Bill of Rights got added, right, the sections of the Constitution that dealt with the militia were dwarfed the sections dealing with the army and the navy, the standing army, because the militias were much more important. Now, so note the note the contrast. First, the similarities, and then the contrast. The similarity of Machiavelli saying, "Rulers must arm their citizens." That makes the ruler stronger. That makes the state stronger. And someone like Patrick Henry, a very an anti-federalist, right? He says this, much the same mm-hmm. thing. The rulers must arm. You know, in support of the Second Amendment, the rulers must arm citizens. Contrast that to the famous uh, quote, uh, the famous remark by Governor Governor Berkeley, the colonial governor of Virginia, who says, and this is well before the, this is well before the revolution, we're talking about 17th century here, 
how miserable that man is. He's writing as someone who's attempting to uh, use the militias, but then to put down the militias, to, to make sure that they don't get out of hand. And so he says, how miserable that man is. He's talking about himself. That governs a people where six parts in seven at least are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. So it's, it's, a, it's an extremely important uh, counterpoint to the, to the theoretical of arming your citizens to make the state strong. Uh, well, this is an important element that I, I, don't, I don't want to get into the, the criticism of things, but this is one of the things that drove me a little mad about the book is just the absence of class. You know, it, it, came, it came up here and there, but whether you're talking about the Roman Republic, you can't, you can't really conceive of what's going on, you know, even with their military. You know, a lot of the, in my reading of Livy at least, like, you know, things are going bad in, in Rome. We need a war. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, there's a constant, you know, manipulation that the upper class, you know, the, the plebeians are able to Im implement to use war making and even the, the armed citizenry use their, their, their being armed as a tool of their own subjugation. You know, it's, it's a um, and, and I think that whenever you get into sort of the, the, the American context, a key part about American republicanism that's different from Harrington you know, it's different from other, uh, different from Machiavelli, is that there's a strand, I think, of American republicanism that doesn't take as, like, just um, a given that there's going to be a property class and then a servant class or a, ser a surf class or, you know, a, you know, a, a, a work, you know, a mudsill class is whatever the guy in the, the South, like, that termed it. Um, you know, like Jefferson even, it's like, yeah, he wanted to confine, you know, say, voting and these other things to people that own land, but he wanted everybody to own land. Like then, that was kind of a key part of sort of the American concept of republicanism is that it was really egalitarian and egalitarian in a way that not all of it. I don't want to generalize and say that was Hamilton's idea of a republic. Although I don't think he was a republican by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but, you know, like or Adams even. You know, like they're, they're they're aristocratic kind of republicans. And then there was this kind of strand of Jeffersonian republicanism that really did want that foundation of, of property ownership to to go across the whole. And, and, and I think that, that is, that's an important part of understanding uh, – I don't know it. I'm, my, my hypothesis would be, because I haven't researched it well enough, but my hypothesis would be that would be an important part of understanding sort of the, um, the, the significance to the revolutionary generation of something like a Second Amendment. You know, it's, it's, it's assuming that you have the, you know, the, phys the, the material competence of citizenship and then guaranteeing that on top of that you know, capacity of, of competency, you have the – coercive power of then protecting yourself you know because because that militia as as you know he does note in Shays rebellion and other rebellions it's like that militia can be a tool of what they call themselves regulation you know what i mean it could be a way in which you know you fight against tyrannical power it's it's the thing that could keep the thing free constantly comes back to oh you know republicanism is attached to you know uh to to you know um you know what is the line from from the second amendment like the you know um a, a free state sort of requires this institution you never get inside the book of exactly why of the threads that tie those things together and i think in the american context it's very much rooted in sort of the, the virtues that come along with the self-governance over the land 
know what I mean? You're, you're understood, and, and with, say, you know, especially in New England, like the township form of governance to where you can actively, you know, involve yourself in the making of law. And the militias in many places were also pretty radically um, democratic also to where you could, you know, these weren't just like, uh, you know, something from on high of like, oh, the militia needs to go out and do this, go, go protect, you know, the slave masters, especially in the north. And a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the light that is cast by Schusterman is on the south. In the north, I, I think that there's, uh, kind of a, a, a um, yeah, an egalitarian strand of republicanism that doesn't really show its head here. And because the, so much of the book doesn't delve directly into the class dynamics of what's going on in any of the political systems that these vignettes are from, I, I think we're, we're missing out on, on a, an important part of, of why, you know, especially the anti-federalists, you know, might have wanted something like uh, the militia, particularly, I'd say, the more democratic anti-federalists. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here because I think that's a very valid point and it's something that can easily come up again in chapters 9 and 10 but yeah. we're not even halfway through the book yet we've almost talked for an hour sorry so I'm gonna sorry. Sorry. ring the bell okay. and then we're gonna move okay. us on to the next okay. round okay. but uh, very fine points chapter 4 is uh, <laughs> England's Parliament debates the Militia Act now this chapter and chapter 6 I'll admit have the most moving parts I, I know very little about English history so this is going to be a very uh, rickety summary that I present here. But basically, Charles I, King of England, uh, starts a civil war in 1642. He loses it. He's definitely in a very bad negotiating, negotiating position with Parliament uh, when it comes to defining his power and the power of Parliament. So, to quote Schusterman from page 68, by the end of the 17th century, England came to identify itself definitely as a nation of rights and liberties and to associate those rights and liberties with the limitations on the monarchy. Eventually, England would come to associate those rights with the lack of a standing army, even as for the first time it was building one. So, I'm going to pause here and say I think we see at least three major th themes of militia development throughout the book. First, we have the Roman Republic Machiavellian sort of sense where the nobles are going to have some sort of control over uh, the militia to keep power away from the, the super elites. And then we get sort of this English version, this transition in the 17th century where the English nobles say it's really parliament that needs to have complete control over uh, uh, the, the military and the militia. And then the third element that we'll get to uh, in a few minutes later on in the book is the American version of the militia, which kind of looks different than anything we've seen earlier. But anyway, Parliament is debating this Militia Act with Charles um, in keeping with uh, Schusterman's idea that there's sort of an intellectual heritage at play here across the, the centuries. He references James Harrington and his uh, utopian novel uh, Oceania, uh, published in 1656. He says that this novel is uh, largely originated the mythic heritage of militias in the English uh, intellectual tradition, uh, quote from page 80. By bringing together uh, these intellectual threads that supported relying on citizen soldiers and linking them to the English notion of freedom, he was able to bring themes into English political thought that would flourish later in the century. So we've moved beyond just having a militia for the security of the state and more towards we need a militia that is made up of 
citizens who have some sort of connection or responsibility to the state. It's not just the elites or the nobles that have control of it. At least that's what I take from the chapter. What do you think? To some extent. But remember that Harrington's writing in the 17th century, right, Mm -hmm. immediately after Charles gets beheaded. So 1656, this is before the Restoration, right? You've got Cromwell running things as king in all but name during this time. People offer him the kingship. He declines. But still, he's basically the king. And Parliament is the one that creates the standing army. And it's important to note that when Parliament, the language, the legal language that Parliament uses is for king and country. They claim, okay, regardless of whatever bonehead Charles I we've got over here, we are still, we Parliament are still the true heirs, the true representatives of what England is. And we're happy to have a king who knows his place. Charles is over here claiming he's still an absolute monarch. And they're, of course, not okay with it. He'll be the last. But doesn't Harrington emphasize the need for land-owning militiamen in particular? Or am I thinking of someone else? It comes up in that chapter. It does. But Harrington says something really interesting in this in, in this context. He says, look, he says, England's woes are due to we arm the poor while the rich sit idle. Mm-hmm. So he wants the... He, he, he wants the militia, but it, it, I, think, I think it's fair to say like, this is a clear implication that it's still for him uh, in this mid-17th century moment, still an aristocratic militia. Now, for him, those are the citizens. Those are the real citizens. Yeah. Now, note this. He says that he, he, has a, he, has a, he has a good turn of phrase here. He says, look, because we are arming the poor while the rich are idle, uh, we thereby become vassals to our servants. This is the way he frames it. And think about this in the context of the 19th century. Neil, you've probably run across this before, right? When, you know, when the franchise in England gets much, much wider in the 19th century, you know, the, you know, the entrenched powers, I, I, uh, I think it's Gladstone. I'm, for, I'm forgetting who exactly says this, but it's, uh, it's brilliant and, and, and all too, you know, uh, not brilliant in the sense that this person is being smart, but brilliant in the sense that it's illustrating something larger here, right? He, uh, he says, um, now that the franchise is so wide, we must educate our masters. You know? mm-hmm. And so there, there's, a, there, there, there's, there's a parallel there with Harrington. It's, it, the, the, arist- the aristocratic thing is still, per- still very much alive here in the 19th century. Those are the citizens. Or those aren't citizens as far as Harrington is. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make for our listeners is that today when we hear citizen, we think you and I walking down the aisle at Walmart buying white bread for the 4th of July. Like These are not the kinds of people that these intellectual writers in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s have in mind. When they say citizen, they think of someone who has earned or gained that position through some sort of material right, usually landowning. And the vast majority of people in most societies, dating back to, I don't know, Babylon <laughs> or Assyria, they're not landowning. They're, they're a peasant class. And so if you were to, if one of us were to get in a time machine right now with an M16, you know, strapped to us and a pocket constitution in our hand and zap back to 1789, the founding fathers would be like, no, 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 no. 
you, you're not, you know, like a landed lord who has a sophisticated understanding of how politics works, and you're going to use your power efficiently for the nation. You're, you're not the kind of citizen we're talking about. At least that's what I am kind yeah. of seeing the the intellectual drift here of this book. Now, that's I mean. an important thing to note just about that, like the, the context of that word, like a part of the city, a citizen, yeah. like someone who is a literal part of the functioning of what a city does. And this is like the way Aristotle sort of goes about describing it. It's like, okay, do you perform any of the adjudicative offices, you know, of, of and, you know, at least with the jury system, we can at least somewhat do that. Are we a part of our actual lawmaking capacity? No. We go and, you know, cast a ballot mm. every four years if, if we're active citizens. I'm putting out the air quotes there. You know what I mean? So, and I think there's a true sense in which, yeah, you know, at this point, it's like, well, what stake do you actually have in society? Like, in the actual state, do you own part of it, mm-hmm. right? Do you yes. own the territory? That's a part. Yeah. You know, are you an active part of the lawmaking, you know, function? Like, those, those, that makes sense in some kind of way. And we really you, you watered it down so much that it's like, you know, it's a participation trophy sort of concept of, you know, uh, you know are, you, are you physically residing within these boundaries? <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, you know, and that's, it's a really impoverished notion of being a part of what a, a, a political community is. Yes. Yeah, I think your your vision of yeah, I'm I'm picking my lucky charms out of the, the you know the the cereal <laughs> aisle. I am I am active in my community. You know what I mean? It's like that's about the extent of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I boo the bad things and I I thumb up the good things. You know, yeah. I I, I like Facebook the stuff. citizenship. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so with chapter five, we finally move into America, or at least the North American land that will become the United States of America with Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, Nathaniel Bacon is 28 years old in June of uh, 1676. He has come to Virginia because he wants to be, as many uh, wealthier guys did at this time, a a wealthy land baron. You can uh, come over to the New World. You can get like 25,000 acres, especially if you bring a lot of indenture contracts with you, and you can get the head right uh, properties from them, and you can plant tobacco and make a killing. The problem is, by the late 1600s, you know, Jamestown is established in 1607. By the, the 1670s, all of that good coastal land and all that good river land right on the James River has been taken up by people like Governor William Berkeley. And when uh, young upstarts who are even well-to-do and have an education and have uh, a noble family behind them in England, when they show up in Virginia, Berkeley and others say, go west, young man. Go, and, of course, when they say west, they're speaking of what we would today call, like, central and western Virginia. Not even West Virginia, <laughs> just like the western part of the state of Virginia. And the land there is not as good. You know, they've got to tear down the trees, they've got to uh, till the soil, and they've got to battle the Indian tribes. And so when uh, Bacon and other uh, landholders, uh, regardless, uh, we're the class kind of comes into play here. We finally see it sort of peek into this chapter. Regardless of the class background of people in Western Virginia, they're very upset that Berkeley and the colonial government are not doing enough to defend what they believe to be their legitimate land claims in the Western part of Virginia. So Berkeley leads this rebellion to sort of overthrow... Berkeley, Berkeley. right? Oh, sorry. um, Bacon. Bacon. Uh, This is what you get for having two characters with B names in the chapter. (laughs) Bacon marches on Berkeley. There's this push and shove in the summer of 1676. But finally, uh, Bacon's Rebellion uh, overthrows Berkeley, at least temporarily. They burn 
uh, Jamestown. Uh, it doesn't get much further than that because Bacon dies of dysentery. In, uh, in October, a thousand royal troops show up to sort of, uh, uh, excuse me, in October, Bacon dies, and in January of 1677, a thousand royal troops show up to restore order. So why does this matter? In England, the militia system is largely controlled by the local gentry. It's sort of what we were just talking about, who are the, the landed aristocracy, who, who is a citizen, who has a vested interest in the state. And they serve to preserve the hierarchy, so nobles are generally officers, landholding men have arms, poor guys generally have no arms. But in the North American colonies, colonial militias, quote, rather than enforcing class divisions, wound up promoting solidarity between rich and poor white colonists on the basis of race. And that's a quote from page 97. So in contrast to the way militias look in England, the colonial militia is an institution through which poor whites sort of internally subordinate their class antagonisms. They, Schusterman makes this point that Bacon is not trying to overthrow the government because he wants to be leader. He overthrows the government because he and Berkeley have a disagreement over how to shape the colony. Bacon wants more land. He wants more government defense for that land. Berkeley believes definitely the English should have that land. He just wants to move more slowly in going about it. I, I sort of see this as like the right wing and the neoliberal parts, the Republicans and the Democrats. They both basically both agree uh, in the military industrial complex, uh, but they just have different ways of going about it. So the, the militia is a very important way in America specifically to make race, in this case, fighting Indians. We'll get to slavery in a moment. Race is the preeminent issue of tying together poor guys with guns and rich guys with guns. And that looks completely different than it does in England. What do you guys think? Guys who take up a a weapons in, yeah. in, in the militia are much more concerned about preserving whiteness and gaining land than they are about some sort of Republican notion of how can we create the most virtuous republic possible? So I know you were just talking about like an egalitarian strand of republicanism in the North and Northeast. I think there's something to that. But we have to remember that when the yeah. Puritans show up in the 1630s, almost immediately they start fighting the Indians. There's a racial yeah. component there to sure. their land gaining process. Right. How, do, well, how do you think about that? No, I think that that's – you're right. It's like a precondition of the whole reality of the colonies. You know what I mean? Like that's – of course there are people here. You know, that coming here, you're going to displace, get in conflict with them. And I, 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 I don't have any disagreement with even that framing of like, yeah, that, that I'm sure created that sort of um, solidarity across classes among whites. I would like, you know, inside of the, the text, which was a little clearer, that it's like this is a, a general fact of British colonialism. You know what I mean? It's not something exclusive to the, the militia side of things. And that's the one thing that I maybe had some questions on is like how much is this distinctively a, uh, a function of the militia versus how much is this just the society? Yeah. And, and of course, like how like, yeah, I would like to know, like, what, what are the differences across? I mean, it was good to mention that, you know, in, in several of the northern colonies, there were prohibitions on, you know, gun ownership for, you know, Native Americans and for African Americans, you know, so like that's good evidence, you know, that, yeah, that's this, that there was a concerted effort not to arm, not to let them be a part of the militia system. So, of course, the militia system has an essential whiteness yeah. Yeah, to it. I think that that's, So yeah. we were just talking about how, what is, what is a citizen in yes. old world Europe? It is the landed gentry versus the poor working class. Yeah. When you come to America, it, 
it transforms, right? right? Yeah. If you're white and you get a gun and you defend the colony, you're right. a citizen. Right. That, or that's part of the process of citizenship. You have a vested interest in the creation of the colony. And yeah. that's, that's a transition for the, the history of the militia that Schusterman is trying to write out here. Yeah, yeah it's a more rough and ready frontier ethos yeah. that just doesn't doesn't exist in the old world we've got to go back to yeah you know barbarians invasion we need to go back to the vikings or something like that to 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 find something analogous there's a historian named roxanne dunbar ortiz who wrote a book of the second amendment called loaded uh, a history of the second amendment and she focuses much more on the second half of the amendment than the first so much more about the individual gun ownership and she says the big thing that we miss in this debate over who gets to own guns and how far did the founders want us to go and all this is that the reason that the founders sort of toss in the individual ownership clause behind the militia is that founders realize that white colonists are not going to wait around in a militia or a standing army to start shooting Indians as they move further west. So she sees that as implicitly a, a, a racial phrase about Indians the individual ownership uh, of arms. Um, it's a compelling argument, and I still think about it. To the, I read that book several years ago. I, I still don't know what to think about it, but she traces a specific racial animosity to that, the individual ownership of guns in the United States, and that's what was built into the Second Amendment. So perhaps we can debate that later. Yeah. If you want to do it later. I, mean, <laughs> I, I have some thoughts just on, like, you know, the, 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 the civic republicanism that's discussed in, in here, and you know, uh, I'm, there's a whole like you know, you know, tradition of American historians that you know focus on like you know, whether it's Wood or Pocock or these others of, of highlighting that role you know in the Revolution. But the sort of the liberalism side of things I think is there too, and that's where the individual kind of comes in. And even if you read Locke, you know what I mean? It's like you know, Locke at least at times you know locates the, the 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 moral right of resistance to government in the individual, even though mm. practically. You're not gonna. He doesn't advise doing it unless you got enough power on your side to actually win. The moral right, the the determine whether or not you you're being tyrannized by your government and whether or not to appeal to heaven, quote unquote, as he, uh, um, you know, as he phrases it euphemistically, you know, go, whether or not to go to revolution against your, you know, go to violence against your, um, against your government. That re- resides within the individual conscience. You know, so I, I think that there there's a strand of liberalism that's very clear. You know, in Jefferson and other. Key thinkers, you know, in, in the early American period, that I think the civic republicanism is there too. That's a totally alive strand that's mm. there. But then there also is a liberalism that is, I think, certainly not necessarily contradictory, unfortunately, to the racism that's going on there. I don't think that I think that's probably fair to say that like it had that function. But yeah. I think there's also a real idea that it seems that you know Schusterman is. I don't know if this is generally true of historians, but it's like the power of ideas. I'm a political philosopher, so I like to like to imagine that ideas have some purchase in the yeah, actual yeah. functioning of the world. Um, but it's like it, it, it seems like there's always this – the real reason this happened is because they just practically wanted to do this thing or the other, that ideas don't have like themselves some sort of motive force. And I, I would – I don't know that the facts to say that that's, that, that account necessarily isn't true, but I would, I would at least, again, start with the hypothesis that, yeah, maybe there are some people that actually hold to this idea that the individual you know, needs to have this ability to resist their government – you know, if they might need to, and that the right mm. to bear arms, and even the militia itself, as again, Chase Rebellion and other episodes show, there are times in which the individual might in their conscience see that, hey, the government tells me to do this, and that's the law, and I know it, but I think this other thing is right. I'm with Chase. 
or I'm, you know, I'm with, you know, the, I can't remember who led the Whiskey Rebellion or whatever, but, you know, I'm, I'm with these guys. And you can, you can tell that's a live power that these citizens feel like they have the discretion to do. Certainly. That doesn't show up in the ideas that are treated in the book in a way that, again, if they would just kind of treated the liberalism side of things, uh, you know, again, it's a short book. I don't want to get go no, whole the, the, hog on these that. Are, but these are fair critiques. Uh, but, yeah, the, I, I think w- if we if we did discuss that, we would... You know, whether it's Bacon, Shea, the Whiskey Rebellion, um, whatever theoretical liberalism, maybe we're back to Machiavelli, I don't know, whatever theoretical liberalism uh, would say, yes, uh, one of the reasons why we we have all this is that we do have the right to rebel against the tyranny. And of course, in all of these cases, the, you know, parts of the people did rebel mm-hmm. and were put down sooner or later um and so if we if we apply liberal if we bring in the the strands of uh, of liberal thought we would probably find that it, it gets contested yes there's a strain of liberal thought that would say no of course it was completely justified we get to revolt against a, mm-hmm. a tyrannical government and then other strains of liberal thought would say well what about the common good here mm-hmm. and of course you might be employing the common good speciously. You might be, mm-hmm. uh, but y- you would find you would find that contestation back and forth. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'd, it might be a little too soon to bring that up. But I'd love to get to what I think the main event is, uh, um, the overarching reason why Schusterman wrote this book. Right? That so he argues, look, the um, We've become the kind of society where the Second Amendment doesn't make sense anymore. This is this is one of the main conclusions that that he draws, uh, and so I'd love to 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 get your thoughts on. Okay, then where do we go from here? Like, no. what, what's what what you know? Uh, where would we bring this down into practical? Okay, what what, what you know? Given that so many Amer- given that the Second Amendment is such a third rail topic, given that so many of uh, my cold dead hands and so forth. Don't tread on me. Yeah, Yeah, and it's like I, uh, when I, when I see this, when I see this appropriated, you know, don't tread on me when the militias of Massachusetts were, uh, were fighting. It's like that, that's one context. And another context is when people who are not a part of a militia uh, or who are a part of a militia that is avowedly anti-government and far right, um, like, what's the change here? What's the justification? What, uh, um, in what way does the government have the right and indeed the duty to put down, you know, of you know, whether we're talking about Ruby Ridge or something something far less known, mm-hmm. or whether we're talking about today, how would we, re- uh, how if at all would we restrict the right of? Uh, of individuals, not well-regulated militias, to uh, to have the kind of heavy firepower that they, cl- they claim to be a constitutional right. What would be the argument uh, in the other direction here? No, I, I think a, a principled liberal would go back as Jefferson went back to natural rights, and they would say, you know, there isn't a question of history here, and there isn't. A, you know, so long as we're talking about humans, like uh, we, we creatures that have these capacities, you know, we're animals, we have life, you know, we we have this free choice, it seems, at least, you know, so we, we, we have something like liberty, and we can conceive together of ideas of happiness and, and to act to pursue these things. If, if that is a fact of human nature, a right of human nature, 
Like, you know, just like, you know, if it's a right of the bird to fly and to clip the wings of the bird, you can do it. And the bird can't fly any, anymore, right? But the, the, you know, the, the natural rights theorists would say that you've, you've done a, a, an objective moral wrong to, to that bird. And that's the kind of claim that a liberal like Jefferson is going to make, you know, about um, life in political community. And if, you're, if your government has done something on that level, which, again, he writes that declaration, making the case that that's precisely what King George had done, um, then no matter where you're at in history, you need the capacity, right, to resist that. And if you die, you die. I mean, they, they sign that, you know, Declaration of Independence, and they say we pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. And I kind of believe they meant it, you know, that there are some things, and I don't know, I don't know that's why we were, we were talking, uh, you know, off, off the mic about, you know, uh, where glory comes in from Machiavelli. But it's, it's hard mm-hmm. to know where some thinkers see that point to where, when is it, you know, when does the realist think it's okay to sacrifice? It's, it's, not as, it's not as problematic for somebody like a Jefferson, you know, as his you know, famous sort of response yeah, to yeah. when hearing about Shays' Rebellion. It's like, well, this is a good thing. You know, the tree of liberty needs to be watered now and again with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Mm. Like, that's a cost of things. And that's, there's a value, a normative value, to living out your natural liberty that justifies you know, a weak government that, that might contain a chaos that could kill you. And, and I don't think Schusterman has any kind of... Uh, doesn't treat that as a live option. Compelling thoughts from the political scientists. <laughs> what do you think about that one? <laughs> uh, I, this is something I, I was thinking about the entire time I, I read the book, and I am big enough to say I don't have any sort of coherent thoughts on it. I, I was having a conversation with a guy recently when I was in New Orleans, but... Is national security a thing that we can obtain? Mm-hmm. Is it a thing that we can define and obtain? And does the government have the right to implement policies about this? Uh, does a standing army that we have today, which is completely antithetical to what the founders were thinking, yeah. uh, is it a moral option in society and the things that we do with it moral? And he said, well, I don't know about all that, but if we're going to have an army, and he, he had served, yeah. he was a veteran, if we're going to have an army, I really want it to be a good one. Yeah. I don't want it to be a bad army, like right. a, a technologically inefficient army. So there's kind of... Or with conscripts who are, you know... Yeah, who, who don't want to be there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I don't know that I'm actually answering your question so much as yeah. compounding it, is that if you're going to go down this road of having a military yeah. and, and agreeing with the idea that the government has some sort of moral authority to exercise power over its own citizens or citizens of another yeah. nation, where do you stop? that power is there a moral exercise of that power and of course the neoliberals would say yes as long as you're defending the you know some sort of noble ideal and then you dump a bunch of money into the country afterwards you know to like uh sort of rectify all the wrongs you might have did along the way but i think that's the curse of the Lockean tradition yeah once you once you say individuals have the right to do this within a certain degree so do governments it's the Pandora's box. I, I totally agree. And that's why, you know, um, can't remember, Lind? I can't remember the guy's name as a jurist from Britain, but um, whenever they read the Declaration of Independence, you know, uh, this jurist, like, replies back and says, you know, well, you put acts to the root of all government. Mm. Like, that this idea that there are national rights and that individual, and that government only has a just existence if it's consented to by those individuals? Like, yeah. you can't form a government on that. Government is to be made to do things you don't want to do. Right yeah. and consent is about doing the things you want to do. Like there's a fundamental. You know, so I, I personally I terminate in that anarchism and I say yes, 
go that way. You know what I mean? The individual, I think, does have that right. But I think if you're going to justify the state, I think it becomes very hard to justify liberalism. You know, it's, it, it's hard to know where the, the, the individual's actual rights might feasibly and consistently, you know, exist. I think they're, they're in, in direct conflict. I, I agree, and I'm looking for a Rousseauian quote to my notes that I can't seem to find that I would love to get your take on a little bit later. Um, is that men must be made to be free, yeah. I, think, I think he yeah, says. And yeah. I think it's most leftists would are, whether they understand it or not, left-wing or liberal in the Rousseauian tradition, whereas most conservatives are conservative in the Burkean tradition, and this is the big clash. I, you know more about political science than I do, but I want to get back to that idea. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. But on, the, on that subject of Rousseau, uh, and we could bring Jefferson in, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a very similar way, that both the anarchists and totalitarians can claim descent from Rousseau, mm-hmm. given what given what he says. In the yeah. same way, uh, both a, a far left and a far right strain of, of of political culture in the United States can both trace their lineage back to Jefferson. You know, he he um, in the, in the same way he's, he's uh, you know Jefferson is very much in the mold of Rousseau, but. When we've talked a tiny bit about police policing, mm-hmm. like when the Second Amendment uh, was cast, when the you know in in the early American Republic, there's no there's no police force as we understand it today. The militia is also that you yes. know you know if if you're if you're a member of the militia and you're putting down you know. Uh, you know, you're putting down, you know, you're going and fighting with indigenous Americans or you're, uh, you know, perhaps you're sent out to, to put down some uh, some rebellion. Or you enslaved are, people. Or in, yes, yeah. absolutely. And he, he, he definitely goes, yeah, yeah. I'd like to hear your summary of that. But it's a, like, it is a society in, in which citizens police each other. Now, it is, it's not the kind of much, much more stratified society that we have today. And so, I mean, I, I, I share the, 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 you know, I share the head scratching, right, on, on where exactly he wants to, uh, where exactly Schusterman wants to go with this. Because on the one hand, his point is extremely well taken. People of the early American Republic who wanted the Second Amendment wanted it because they were horrified of the possibility of a standing army. Yeah. Fast forward to today... And the people who are the most stalwart supporters of the Second Amendment are also the most stalwart supporters of the American Standing Army. Yeah. In, in other words, things have completely reversed. The, 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 if you tried to explain this to, to, to the people who were crafting the Second Amendment, they would say, you know, they would think that we were in La La Land. And, um, you know, we have become, this is, this, is, this is one of Schusterman's final points, we have become the kind of society that the Second Amendment was designed specifically to prevent. Yeah. With a large standing army, uh, an untrained citizenry, and so on. And so I, I do wonder, I mean, I, I think that contested liberalism is a really important part of this. Um, and that, you know, uh, the rights and the duties of the individual are 
always going to be surfacing no matter no matter what and no matter how strong the state is. Um, but going back to Machiavelli, he would recognize the situation as, look, despite his utopianism, and there was a, there 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 was quite a lot in the same like Harrington's book Oceana was explicitly a utopia, right? And he's very much in the uh, in the in the vein of Machiavelli. But for Machiavelli, you, you arm the citizens because without arms, citizens are not citizens. Citizens are subjects. If you are, yeah, if, if you are an unarmed, uh, you know, peasant, then you are a subject. Mm. And there's no question of you being a citizen in Machiavelli's world. Um, in a Western European context today, uh, you know, it's, as, as, we, as we all know, it's, you know, educated Europeans look at look at what goes on in America with, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it's caricatured often, often the caricature very much approaches reality of just a bunch of Yosemite Sams, right, um, popping off. But what is a realistic alternative? Uh, is there a realistic alternative? I mean, it sounds, Neil, like, like you're, for all its faults and for all the ways in which things have completely... Um, Reality has almost folded in on itself between the time of the Second Amendment's formulation and today that you would see, you know, partly in terms of that, uh, of just individual rights, pure and simple, that 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 right to bear arms still carries some purchase, uh, whether or not we like the the effects of it. I don't know. Am I I reading you right? Well, um... Uh, I have so many thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I think that you know, whenever you imagine, I, we 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 the the whole term realistic, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like the term necessary. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah. well, the, okay, what is existing? You could say, okay, so necessarily this has come to exist. This is real in the sense that it's currently existing. But to be confined to that as the only idea that we should seek to realize. You know, like to, the, the, the only thing we can do is to recreate the thing that has already been created. I think that is somewhat like the kind of stability that our constitutional system is designed to get us, get us like desiring. And I think that that's a very toxic sort of idea. You can see, you know, it's, it's totally like um, half-baked, not even half-baked, you know what I mean? But it's like the, the thing about like the, the, the sort of populism that, you know, exists in the country now um, and I don't use that in any kind of negative connotation, but you have this anti-elitism, this sense that this system, this reality that people experience isn't working. It's not satisfying. And it may, materially, you might say, oh, you know, you look like read Steven Pinker or something, and you can think you're living in the best of all possible worlds. But that's not the way people kind of feel. Like, human beings don't just need bread. You know what I mean? They, they need to feel like they are active agents in their own lives. And the, 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 um, the scope of the... St- of, of state power, of corporate power, of, of the, the sort of the systems that we live under get us thinking in such a kind of con- confined sphere that I think people, people sense that that's not satisfying enough. They have no idea of what, might, what alternatives might exist. And I actually, as a big preamble to just saying that, like, I see in the Second Amendment something that you're, Schusterman's totally right, is utterly out of step. You know, with our with the realities of our political culture, totally fair to throw those contradictions at the the great patriot, you know, Second Amendment lovers. You know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, I think it harkens, and I see the American Revolution as a kind of a touch point of real like 
missed opportunity yeah. of like there's an idea there there are real cool ideas that were alive in that revolutionary period that the constitution succeeded as it intended to do in snuffing out you know and i don't think they're dead you know i think that i think that something like the idea that hey if there we are you know beings in the world that need to exercise power in one way or the other i personally think that power needs to be equalized and universalized right so that whatever powers exist whether economic power or coercive power, or any of those sorts of things, if we're going to have a just society, those things need to be universalized and equalized. That, that, that is sort of my vision. I don't think that that hope is dead. And I see that hope not in everybody that advocated for the Second Amendment back in the day, let alone anybody that advocates for it now. But I see a remnant of that notion, the idea that once you've created some institution of a standing army, you know what I mean, you've given up, you know, you've, you've surrendered the prospect of liberty. You might you might succeed in having that despotic regime treat you well, which we have, right? But it's you know uh, Edward Snowden um, he, he he calls you know he's just kind of referring to sort of the powers of the surveillance state and the ability of you know uh, the government if it so chose to snuff out any possible resistance to it. He call it turnkey tyranny. You know what I mean that like the machine is there, it's ready. And the Constitution I think created that machine to begin with. It wasn't the surveillance state or whatever. And I think that we're probably well into it. Something like, you know, the, 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 the soft despotism that, you know, um, Alexis de Tocqueville and Democracy in America was worried about. I kind of think that's here. I mean, we've forgotten of the concept of liberty. But you can see the concept of liberty in that Second Amendment. And, and the idea of turning against it is just kind of a final scoop of dirt on the grave. <laughs> you know, it's like the, one of the few things we have left. Yes, we, we aren't mature enough to deal with guns. We harm children. It's horrific. You know, I don't want to minimize that in the least bit. But the political content of that, that doesn't mean our government doesn't harm people, right? We're just getting ready to send cluster munitions off to Ukraine. Like, that's going to be harming decades, mm. right, of, of Ukrainian children, you know? They're going to be stepping on ordinances and whatnot and blowing their legs off and dying and, and whatnot. We do that all the time. We also do it domestically. But that's not the only, that's not the only part of that idea, you know, to kind of to, to, to think back to. But, but Schusterman's right, and he does a great job of, of at least turning our eye back to, like, why, why would this have existed to begin with? I'm sorry, that was really way too long. Way too long. I, no, I enjoyed it. Oh, but yeah. speaking of turning our eye back to the, <laughs> nice. to the text, nice. um, perhaps the most uh, complicated chapter in my mind, uh, chapter six, Andrew Fletcher of Saltoon publishes a discourse of government with relation to militias in 1698. Uh, perhaps this seemed like the most complicated chapter for me because I've never heard of Andrew Fletcher, and I also know very little about James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, who was, uh, let's see, one of Charles's several illegitimate sons, so he has a very tenuous claim to the throne, and uh, this is very short-lived Monmouth's rebellion, and this guy, Andrew Fletcher, is a part of this moment. It fails, but Fletcher is a part of this intellectual tradition that Schusterman's trying to get at uh, in creating texts alongside the likes of people like John Toland or, or Rousseau or uh, uh, Trenchard, uh, who are writing texts at this time that are hypercritical of standing armies, very critical of monarchy, and very celebratory of militias. It's sort of like this... Uh, classical liberal response to old world monarchy and this is sort of like uh, beginning the the beginning moment where militias are beginning to really be grounded in 
the intellectual tradition of England. I, I think that's what I, I'm pulling out of this chapter, and Fletcher is one of these examples. This is also the first time we see private ownership of guns crop up in this book, and Fletcher is part of this effort to say militias are important. Where do you get militias? From the dudes that are just walking around in society, and when they show up in camp because they want to volunteer if they've been commanded to be there, they need to have a gun. So we're seeing private ownership of guns being sort of tied into this tradition. And we all, this very complicated chapter, we also get the English Bill of Rights in 1689. All of these are sort of in a, a maelstrom here of what Schusterman calls on page 101, the intellectual foundation of militia advocacy. Okay. So I'm not going to go through all of the, debate, the debates between William of Orange and uh, various monarchs with Parliament and the creation of the, the English Bill of Rights, but suffice it to say that our Bill of Rights is very much modeled on the English Bill of Rights, the concept that there should be certain uh, liberties that individuals hold. And when they were creating this English Bill of Rights, they were certainly thinking about gun, gun ownership and the appropriate use of militias at that time. So Schusterman argues that the Declaration of Rights was not so much important for what it stated, but for how English thinkers interpreted it during the Standing Army controversy of the late 1690s. William of Orange, who maintains the throne, uh, really wants to gain more control over the army. Parliament pushes back against that. Uh, this controversy established precedents of political thought that Americans were well aware of by the 1770s. So, yeah, that's probably not a very sophisticated explanation of this chapter. That's due to my own ignorance. But well, it doesn't need to be sophisticated. It's pretty, it, it, it's, it's straightforward. One detail I think is important to highlight about okay. that. In the, those agreements of the 1690s and the Glorious Revolution and the, the agreement that, that William Orn, of Orange makes with Parliament. And Mary, I should add her there too, right? William and Mary, yeah. yes. To marry the, the daughter of James who's been chased out. Yep. There was one stipulation. The citizens have the right to bear arms. Protestant citizens. Yes. Now, during this time, of course, there's, a, you know, as had been the case centuries before, there's a Catholic minority that's clamoring for rights. And in the Glorious Revolution, English citizens, Protestant English citizens now have the right to bear arms. Catholics do not. So yeah. just one, one important detail to how do you... You know, restricting the right to bear arms just like one restricts the, the franchise and so, so on. Absolutely. And that ties into the chapter that preceded it about uh, Bacon's Rebellion and the chapter that we will discuss next, the Stono Rebellion, uh, this idea of selecting who gets to bear arms. There's already a precedent for that in England. It's Protestants and not Catholics. So it's not really that far-fetched of an idea for American colonists to say, well, it's white people, not black people, not Indians, that get to bear arms. So what do the militias look like in England uh, around the 1690s? Were there Protestant militias? What do the militias look like in America? Were there white militias? So this idea of exclusion is kind of built into democracy. Uh, we're talking into all government. Yes, I mean, ultimately, no, it's never even a democracy. It's never like, you know, like, like you're alluding to it's if even if a majority authentically rules, which it never does. But even if it did, it's ruling over a minority. That minority is not ruling. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're they're kind of excluded from that power. So like there is that fundamental distinction with, within all government of that. 
So I think it's an important point to 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 make about okay, yes, there is this explicit either race based or religion based sort of exclusion going on, but that is part and parcel just with the logic of government. Some people making other people do things they don't want to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take control of the conversation again and move us on into chapter seven, just so I can get us through all the chapters so we can have a little bit of a free-flowing conversation in the end. Uh, we're moving into the Stono Rebellion. This was uh, 1739. Um, there was a rebellion of enslaved people in South Carolina in September of 1739. Uh, they kill a number of white people. Uh, they're marching south towards uh, Florida. And then the governor sort of rounds up as many uh, white militiamen as he can get his hands on and puts down this rebellion. Uh, and this is, as other historians have argued before, Schusterman, a concerted counterattack from slaveholders. So this is exclusion in its most aggressive form. Like you say that you have the right to freedom, you're demonstrating that right through violence. We're saying you absolutely do not in the form of crushing mm -hmm. this rebellion. And they're using the white militia to do so. So the second point that... Uh, Schusterman makes with the Stono Rebellion is that it stood in contrast to Bacon's Rebellion. Their militias had kind of demonstrated the power that I think you're getting at earlier, Neil, the power of the people to kind of destabilize government if they're unhappy with it. This is the obverse of that. This is where militias mm -hmm. very much demonstrate their willingness and capacity to stabilize mm -hmm. the, the coercion of government, especially in, in the racial components of it. And this really gets at the the last heartbeat of Schusterman's argument that militias are about, you know, Republican virtue, people, you know, being dedicated to the uh, coherency of the of the government. But in America specifically, it's about whiteness. And if we're going to read the Second Amendment, we need to keep in mind that when they say militias, they have a very certain image of who they mean by militia in mind of doing that. And I know you might want to push back on that to a certain extent, but I think. If we look at the laws from 12 colonies, uh, as he does, you know, Quaker Pennsylvania did not have a colonial militia. But if you look at the other 12 colonies, we've got five key features. One, there's a criteria for who could serve. It was generally limited by age and free status. So, again, largely young white guys. B, militia leaders had to keep registries. So we've got early bureaucracies forming. We're making a list of who's available in our militia who could serve all that stuff c militiamen had to equip themselves uh that's certainly something uh we've gotten away from in the modern military you show up and uncle sam just sort of doles <laughs> out the uniforms and the food and, and the guns um, d uh militias required to have training sessions and e a variety of means to delineate hierarchy maintain discipline determine leaders uh, and exempt certain professions. So there's some sort of bureaucracy at play there determining who has power in this organization. So the racial component of self-defense was the single largest distinction between citizen soldiers in colonial America versus their earlier iterations in uh, the old world. And there's a great quote on 140 in which Schusterman says, the goal was not to create an armed society, but rather a divided society where one half was armed and the other half was not. So again, I will reiterate this point of when we read the Second Amendment and we see the word militia and we see the right to bear arms by the individual implicitly shall not be infringed. Who are those militias? Who are those individuals? And there is definitely a racial component built into that concept. How do we know that? By looking at how militias operate in American history. They're always operating against, well not always, but 99% of the time against Indians, 
against uh, enslaved people, against people of color. So how do you respond with, I think I've asked you this question already, but I'll ask it again. The egalitarian sense of owning a weapon to fight back against the government and then you read something like this that says, "Oh yeah, the, the primary means of, I mean, the primary reason for owning a weapon is to fight people of color." Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a thing of like we have we have natural rights, you know what I mean, um, and we have liberties associated with those. It doesn't mean those liberties are going to be well used. You know, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean they're going to be respected. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So you know, I, I you know, think about. I wish I knew more about the history, but it's like it was even, what is even alluded to with, say, Vermont. You know what I mean? Vermont, uh, you know, their their militia seemed to have been instrumental in, you know, uh, separating from, I, I think it was part of New York and Massachusetts or something like that mm. originally. Um, and, you know, creating free state of Vermont. And, and weren't they one of the earlier ones to... Um, Vermont, I believe, was the first colony to get rid of slavery. Yeah. The first so it's like, yeah, I think that Schusterman seems very set against the sort of the modern, uh, you know, um, use or, or place for something like a militia, thus you know, wants to get away from the Second Amendment altogether and wants to paint it, you know, with the, the brush of racism. And it's totally fair to, to paint the brush of racism over a great swath of early American history. Yeah. But to see the institution of the militia as essentially racist, which mm. I, that's not a claim that comes out in statement, yeah. but seems to be implied with a lot of the thrust of both the examples and sort of the claims that are made, yeah. I think, again, this is a possibility of, like, you do see glimmers of times. And, you know, there's even during the discussion of Shay's Rebellion, and again, we have a white militia. It's yeah, like, well, the Shays Rebellion, at least as far as I know, wasn't about race. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a race. Or I don't, I've never heard of any, like, I've read a couple books on it, and I wasn't paying attention to look for that kind of a thing, but nothing that I had encountered in my novice, you know, sort of uh, pursuit of the topic. But there was a, a clear attempt to want to say, like, again, these racist militias, <laughs> as if the governments themselves aren't racist, as if the economy around them isn't racist. I mean, yes, it was a racist, you know, white supremacist society, largely. Doesn't mean everybody but he was, especially, like, say, yeoman farmers or something in the north. I doubt they had progressive race, racial attitudes, but it doesn't mean that motivated every part of, like, yeah. their, their political thought. Yeah. And the militia had a clear foundation in what is a, a pretty confirmed aspect that, that, that we do know was a part of their political thought, at least to the extent that we have things like the Declaration of Independence. We also have, you know, early uh, state constitutions that include an explicit right of revolution. I think that still exists in the New Hampshire Constitution, the Kentucky Constitution, North Carolina. There, I mean, granted, it's like kind of a dead letter. It's like, I have a right to break the law. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But the idea is, is significant and important that, that this was seen not only as we're going to enforce an order that is here. It is a, a latent possibility of the people to, to secure their liberties into the future. They might abuse those liberties. Yeah. That's totally fair. That's true. Yeah. But it's like I, it, it's it's like a it's it's kind of lame in my in my view to like it, it's uninteresting in a way to not consider well what if we did make use of that well a is that real do we really as human beings have something like a right to defend ourselves and if something like you know firearms exists in the world how can we defend ourselves with something comparable mm. like even if you don't agree with it that's like a reasonable position and if and you know so I, I just I just think that. The kind of the rhetorical, the, the there are a lot of skips and jumps in the argument here that that that, that Schusterman uh, wants to get us to the point of saying, ah, so you see, the Second Amendment has so sort of no no relevance to mm. the modern moment by looking over sort of some of the key foundations that that were there that you know just chosen not to look at, even though again he looks at things like the 
um, you know, the, 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 what do they call the Green Mountain Boys or whatever mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in Vermont or Shays Rebellion. But it doesn't look at the, the key parts of those that, that might have pointed that direction. I mean, Shays Rebellion was pretty clearly a, a class-based you know, at least in my view, sort of rebellion. That's what was so alarming about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it showed a power on the part of, you know, and again, that's that's a kind of idea that's in line with a, a whole Jeffersonian strand of sort of the economic vision of the country that you also see in anti-federalists like like Sentinel and others that that see that hey, we can't have you can't have political liberty, which is the overarching arching goal, unless you have economic independence, right? So those two go hand in hand. And you and you could you could have told the story in a way that, that showed the fight for those things as pursuing that economic independence that yes maybe had some racial undertones too maybe that's also a part of the story but it it just is too easy of a move yeah. that it, it just it, it washes away a whole complicating part of the story whether you're gonna wherever you're gonna end on it, it's fine but it's like that yeah, it's, me. it's incidental rather than than fundamental yeah and yeah yeah I mean the other thing about about Shays Rebellion you're right the the interesting thing about how it ends, yeah. right? That so how how many uh, you know Congress to put down you know the National Congress to put down the Shays Rebellion uh, sends troops to Massachusetts from other states uh, under the pretense that it was to quell an indigenous attack. That was whiskey, or, or was that was that, that no was, no that the request was, was understood. Yeah. No, no, you're right, you're right, yeah. right. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And and. Okay, so I can understand why Schusterman would go in the direction that he's gone, but then it's important to note those militias that yeah. Congress brought up, they didn't help. Hmm. Like, for whatever reason, those did not help. The rich, you yeah. know, the, yeah. of, of uh, <laughs> eastern Massachusetts, they actually hired mercenaries yeah. to put down this yeah. militia, yeah. to put down Shays. So that, that's yeah. a... Uh, again, a really important contradiction. Yeah, I think that's an, a, a great segue into Chapter 8, which is, I think, the shortest chapter. The Minutemen turned back to Redcoats at Concord Bridge in 1775. Because there's something that comes out in this chapter that we that appears in other chapters, but we have yet to talk about. And that's that, militarily speaking, on an operational, tactical level, militias stink. They lose all the time. They're not good fighting units most of the time. I mean, people like Nathaniel Green at the Battle of uh, uh, Guilford Courthouse deliberately puts his militiamen in the very front of the line and tells them, fire a volley, maybe two, and retreat, because he knows they're going to anyway. And he's using that to kind of draw the British in, and, and, and then they'll run into the, the Continentals, and he's going to hope to uh, defeat the British that way. So George Washington, it appears again and again in this book, kind of is always nudging Congress. We need a real army because these yeah. militiamen stink. militia is a broken staff. Yeah, exactly. How it, yeah. However, oh, go no, ahead. No, I was just going to ask you if you think if there's anything to the argument, no, I have no idea, but in the, end, the argument that the, the creation of the Continental Army kind of sucks the wind out of the possibility of the militia. You know, I mean, had there not have been the Continental Army, there would have been maybe higher quality troops that might have been in the militia. The Who would have trained them? Yeah, Even the Continental Army stunk for a while until they had people like von Steuben like come and train them and 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 again you mentioned already the French send the standing army to yeah, help yeah. us like and let's not forget pretty. that when uh Cornwallis is bottled up at Yorktown whose boats are sitting out in the harbor it's the French so there is standing formal highly subsidized military power that helps the United States win the revolution and I, we we can arm wrestle in the yard if you want, but I just don't think the militiamen would have could have won 
the revolution on their own. Maybe. I, I, I just don't. Is that the it. point, though? I mean, again, we're, we're kind of adopting, you know, de facto a Machiavellian frame of like, well, who got more power? Yeah. Well, that's who got more power? It's, well, does it, it matter who got more power if? You know, you know, if Hitler would have lived a full life and you know succeeded in all his endeavors, would he have been a good guy? <laughs> no, you know what I mean. It's like, and then that's a, you know, that's a very unfair move, but as an argument, but like that—that that is kind of the point. Of it's like, well, so the the point of a militia isn't just that it's good at winning battles. Maybe Machiavelli thought it was. Maybe for his day, it was actually true. I don't really even care. Like the the question is, it has some purchase, I think, for on on an ideological or theoretical level that it's like, well, if you had to, in a just way, defend a community. Wouldn't it look something like that? Mm. And if you wanted to, to, to foster self-governance within individuals and virtue within individuals, virtue like even just like the most fundamental political virtue of courage, right, to actually have some practice in defending yourself, no, I don't want to go and take land from Native Americans. No, I don't want to go on slave patrols, mm. right? But even as you can imagine a just society and a, and a just environment, wouldn't that kind of be a model that would be supportive of sort of democratic political institutions that would allow a kind of a voice and a participation? Certainly. I, I just don't know how we would have gotten there. Who gives a shit? <laughs> so so wait, who knows where we're going? You know what I mean? We're living, we're, we're, we're currently recording amidst the like apocalyptic haze of, you know, the, the world might be burning. I don't think that w what we can land on is, will it last forever? You know, who cares? Well, who cares? It's, it's a very important question. One one basic uh, answer to that is, well, we wouldn't be around to be contemplating this. We wouldn't be around to, uh, you know, being. And I know this is this is a much bigger bigger topic, and I really look forward to to grappling with this grappling with this later. Was the Constitution a good thing or a bad thing? If we compare the American trajectory... <laughs> two thumbs down. Two thumbs down. <laughs> you, you guys have two thumbs down. I'll, I'll give you each two thumbs down, and I'll do two thumbs up. And No, but seriously, yeah. like it's, it's an important debate to be had, because when we compare, for example, the American trajectory with the French trajectory, let's say, um, and I know we're kind of getting off topic here, but I would probably have preferred if I had been playing, you know, w w one of those Civ board games or something like that, <laughs> to have not be in the fifth iteration of an attempt at a republic in the French case versus mm -hmm. uh, a government, a society, a state that has for all its many and multitudinous faults uh, given some continuity and stability for this entire time since before the French started, started their march towards fifth, the Fifth Republic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a, it, um, it, I think it's, it's a live debate is what I'm saying. Who cares is a really good question. Yeah. And it seems like you were, you were saying it in the, in the sense of, oh, I mean, it's a rhetorical question and, and nobody really cares. I think that some people would. I think, I, yeah, it's, it's... I meant who cares in the sense of, why should that be our highest priority? Well, because... That's a yeah. With the, it's kind of like okay, you, would you prefer the sort of the the long life spent in slavery or the short life lived in liberty? Are those my only two options? <laughs> yes, they are. I mean, well, it's the same right, question. Right, are are exactly. France and and you know America our only two options? Like no, exactly. But it's like, we, and I think that the, the the move that Machiavelli gets us into is an amoral way of thinking. You know, it's it's almost yeah, something. I would something. Disagree. I, I I know what you're saying. Yeah. I remember like the the, the virtue. Oh, that does not exist before a person gains power, before the virtue that he wants to hold a ruler to 
after All that ruler virtue dance. means for Machiavelli is holding and expanding power. Like he he like it's explicit about like you know don't don't be restrained by religion don't be restrained by you know what you know the the, the philosophers are going to tell you you know like what you need to figure out is even if you have to be cruel even if you have to kill your uncle like some of the examples that he gives right the prince is definitely uh, yeah there's what? there's a, there's a lot going on there well yeah but I mean um, I think that that would be perfectly justifiable within a republican context too I mean he's you know think about oh my gosh. Um, Romulus and Remus. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like there's 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 always that even in the founding periods there's these great cruelties. You got to overawe the, the sort of the people. Like this is an essential part of sort of the Machiavellian worldview. Mm -hmm. And I think you could run up to the present with the prospect of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. The only thing that we can do to keep ourselves from kill from from one another's throats is to have this apocalyptic weapon that can destroy the species. And we're just going to trust we'll have enough Cincinnati or whatever to, uh, to, never, to never actually use to do so. Yeah, the ideal of Cincinnatus in, in the kind of a world in which, wait a minute, if our society melts down, it may mean a global collapse, right? It may yeah. mean species collapse, not just, I mean, the ability. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very important point. To what extent can we depend on these old examples, and to what extent do we really need to find uh, find our way, uh, you know, through a relatively trackless wilderness? I think my question is: to what extent need need we conceive of an ideal? Like, because because that's where I think the you know the. the you know the, the Federalists seem to be persuasive. You know, at least to the the people that were you know, active in the ratifying conventions, at least eventually, mm -hmm. that it's like, well, you know, this might not satisfy our ideals of a republican government, but maybe it's it's stable. You know what I mean? What, to what extent should we be always willing to make that compromise? Mm -hmm. And we'll still speak the language of it. We'll still have our Fourth of Julys. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And we'll we'll still do this, that, and the other. We'll still call ourselves citizens and things like this. But functionally, practically. We have no power over our political system, right? In a fundamental way, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, so, like, it's a, I mean, it's a valid point. I, I think there's also a valid counter argument. Mm -hmm. There are indeed some ways in which people beyond a founding generation uh, can exercise influence. Um, and maybe that makes me a little bit Pollyannish, but I would just contrast that to, say, Augustus, right? Uh -huh. uh, when, when the various waves of civil war that culminate in Augustus uh, finally come to an end, Augustus is telling everybody like he he never wears a crown. He, he never, he, I mean, when he calls himself, this is actually something that I think Schusterman gets a little bit wrong. When he calls Augustus the first emperor, well, I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's how we would look at it. But imperator in, in Latin meant, it, it, it meant commander. Like, uh, he was indeed the first. But that's not how the people viewed him. He never wore a diadem. He never wore a crown. He always, uh, you know, he called himself the first citizen. He always said, oh, no, of course you Romans have your, you know, of course you're still free. Of course you enjoy your ancient liberties. Of course, of course. It took, a, it, it, I think it was Diocletian, or it, it took a century or two for a, for a Roman emperor to finally slap a crown on his head. And even then, a lot of Romans thought that the guy had gone crazy. So 
it's a lot easier to see in an ancient in that in that ancient context. And, and you know, despite everything, despite oh, okay, you know, there's still there's still you know, of course there's still a Senate. Of course your freedoms are are, are still intact. And everybody knows that that's a dead letter. It's a, it's, that's a lot more clear-cut uh, case of, of what you're talking about, I think, than the United States after the Constitution. Um, I know that I know that we're probably a little bit. Uh, uh, We've wandered very far afield. <laughs> We've got less than 30 minutes, but we, we don't have much left of the book. And then I will turn you two guys loose. <laughs> the point I want to make with Chapter Eight is that militias throughout the Revolution don't actually do that well. Washington realizes that he's already had that experience in the French and Indian War. So that's when he comes into the revolution as commander of the Continental Army saying, we need a professional army, we need one, we need one. However, when the British occupy Boston in 1773, 74, uh, excuse me, 74, yeah, definitely 74, uh, as a result of the uh, Boston Tea Party, um, and then they sally forth in... April of 1775 to try to capture colonial militia and leaders. It it just so happens one of the great ironies of history that at Lexington and Concord, uh, the Minutemen are able to turn back the British, or at Concord specifically. So even though they lose pretty frequently in the French and Indian War, they don't perform very well in the Revolution. At the one moment that it matters, the initial you know, a, a fight of the revolution, they do pretty well. And Schusterman argues that that victory kind of lives on in the mythology of America, that militias are effective, that they sort of validate both the intellectual and the practical traditions of militia, both in old world Europe and in America. And what I mean by intellectual tradition, of course, is all of the the great ponderous thinking we've been doing so far, but also the practical tradition what I mean by that is the, the way that militias have operated mm-hmm. in the country against Indians, against people of color, sometimes against uh, governments. Practically, they win against the British at Concord, and this sort of cements the fame of the militia, that it is possible that mm-hmm. militias, virtuous militias, can operate and win and sustain the nation. But that's a misnomer, I would argue, <clears throat> and I think Schusterman would agree. That runs us into Chapter 9. Hamilton, Madison, and uh, Jay, that's John Jay, published The Federalists, 1787 to 1788. Um, so now that we've won the revolution... Washington, again, is saying we need a professional army. The militia forces have a pretty spotty record. They contribute to the victory at Saratoga. They fled at the Battle of Camden. There are a few other examples that demonstrate they're maybe not the best to rely on. They're good at slave patrols. They're good at quick dust-ups with the Indians in the West. But when it comes to fighting the world's greatest military, England, which is still our enemy after the Revolution, we need something more sophisticated. Uh, and then we get your favorite, Shays Rebellion, in 1786. This demonstrates that not only do we have external enemies we've got to worry about, we've got internal divisions. And, and clearly, as we've already kind of talked about, the militias kind of fall on their face in opposition to Shay and his rebellion. I should note, for listeners who may not know what Shays Rebellion is, uh, Daniel Shay is a former revolutionary officer. He and many people living in uh, many veterans living in western Massachusetts who cannot pay their bills after the war, they cannot pay their mortgages, basically rise up and they shut down a lot of courthouses in order to keep the sheriffs from foreclosing on their property. Um, and the founding fathers are really disturbed by this. They're taking a look and they're very uneasy. How are we going to settle this issue? Because this really 
could represent an overturning of the very fragile government that we've set up. Let's keep in mind that the United States is about three years old at this point, and it's operating off the Articles of Confederation. Congress has very little power. It cannot tax the colonies. It has no standing army. You know, perhaps Shays Rebellion represents the end of the short-lived republic. So they get together yeah, and say... Con- before the Constitution is even is even formulated, much less ratified. Yeah, and, and Schusterman argues that Shays Rebellion is very much in the minds of the delegates who gather in Philadelphia in May of 1787 and say, we've got to rework the Confederation, the Articles. We've, we've got to do something, because otherwise we're just going to be all fighting one another. Um, and that's when we get, shortly thereafter... The Federalists, Federalists are people who believe in a centralized government, who believe in passing the Constitution, write um, defense papers, propaganda papers, whatever you want to call them. They publish them in newspaper. These come to be known in history as the Federalist Papers. They're basically trying to encourage people to support the Constitution, to vote for it. And the Federalist writers asserted that the Constitution's militia clauses were moderate in a realistic form of republicanism. I should double back and say that the militia clauses, let me find these in my notes, Congress would have the power to call upon the militia to execute law, suppress insurrection, repel invasion, as well as organize or pay for militias if need be. And a quote from page 187, these laws were an attempt to reconcile Republican principles and the need for stability. However, a lot of people read that and say the government should not have control over our weapons. Government should not have control over how we organize ourselves into a military. And it, it's really uh, the Federalist Papers that, that kind of make a lot of Americans feel secure about the constitutions. Of course, there are the uh, anti Federalists who stand very much opposed to that. And I'm just going to go ahead and go right into chapter 10. Congress amends the Constitution, 1789, 1791. We need to note that the Constitution passed without a Bill of Rights. And it took prominent anti Federalists like George Mason and Patrick Henry to apply a, a lot of pressure. Uh, and later on, uh, James Madison as well to apply a, a lot of pressure to Congress and get them to amend the Constitution somewhat. And here, let us note that the original language is where we started like three hours ago. The original (laughs) language of the Second Amendment looks somewhat different. So um, from uh, I think this is George Mason's original language. He's a representative from Virginia. He's writing in the Virginia Declaration of Rights that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies in time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and be governed by the civil power. So this is the vision that a prominent anti-federalist has about how the American military, if you can call it that at this time, should look. And remember, he's going toe-to-toe with James Madison at the Virginia Ratification Convention. And Madison is like the the, the chief architect of the Constitution. Uh, There's a few other points I want to make, and then I I will uh, shut up. Uh, In August of 1789, the House of Representatives... 
formulated their version of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people being the best security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. That is a really wordy Second <laughs> Amendment. It goes to the Senate. The Senate chops it down to its current day language as we see it. So let, let's keep in mind the entire intellectual tradition that we have talked about for this entire episode. By, by the time the founders, both Federalists and Anti-Federalists, are writing the Second Amendment, they're far more concerned with what militias look like than what private gun ownership looks like. And they're concerned with two things. First of all, is the militia going to be able to um, act against or stand in place of a standing army? And second of all, who is in the militia? It is generally white, generally land-owning people who are dedicated to the republic, hopefully not persuaded by their own uh, avarice. So uh, I'll end with this quote from Schusterman on 210 and 211. An armed citizenry is not the same as an armed population, and it remained one of the main requirements of the armed citizens that they police the actions of those parts of the population that were, by law, unarmed. So that leaves us with the epilogue in which we've already made this point a million times today. Contemporary U.S. society doesn't look like anything like I just described from chapters 9 and 10. And in fact, the very last point that Schusterman makes is that in the 2008 Supreme Court case D.C. versus Heller, um, the amendment, uh, or the, the court went with what they thought was the original understanding of the amendment, but rather it was the final death of militia service for citizens as part of their Republican obligations. That is, the Supreme Court emphasized the second half of the amendment more than the first half and basically forgot all of this history about militias that we've discussed today. So what do you guys think about... Just, just one, one thing I wish would have been covered in the text. Is, and it kind of was alluded to when it uh, when Schusterman mentioned how even some uh, cowboys, you know, the, some slaves who had like shepherding kind of duties. Like I didn't, mm -hmm. I don't know the full history of that. Yeah, it's actually the origins of the term cowboy are enslaved people in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So they um, had arms that they were, you know, to hunt and you know mm -hmm. to, to to manage the whatever they were charged with doing. Yes. I would imagine, considering the vast majority of the population were farmers. Yes. That um, aside from any militia purpose for a, a, a firearm, that the the presence of a firearm would be valuable, and anybody that could have one would probably have one for hunting or no? Yes, white people. The, the well, no, that's people what I mean. That it's like anybody about. that has like land. Like, I'm just saying, how much of because yeah, that establishes a little bit more of you know what you would need to think about in thinking well what would what could be assumed about the individual's current ownership of firearms like is mm -hmm. it like I don't know how the Swiss do it or whatever but I remember reading at some point about uh, you know some society that had militias that basically they had a store of you know the weapons and you'd go and train with those weapons and then put them back in the mm -hmm. store you wouldn't bring them back to your home but this society would seem to be you know with basically yeoman farmers in much of the country uh, at least of the white population but still a good majority I think probably of the of the population within the territory of the colonies would probably have a good use for the firearm and probably it was common that would be my hypothesis yeah, you know I. I... There's a big debate about how common firearms okay. were in the colonial era. In fact, there's a really controversial book, and I'm blanking on both the name and the author, who basically said guns are not quite as common 
as people think they are, then people pushed back really hard against him, and he was kind of like run out of the profession. <laughs> Here's something we should keep in mind. It's really hard to make a gun. Sure. In the 1770s, 1780s, you, you're not waltzing down to Jimmy Bob's shoot 'em up store uh-huh. and, and buying a 50 gallon drum of, of bullets or whatever. That's what they come a, in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to go to your local blacksmith. That's the, that's the yeah. You got your slushy machine over here. You got your. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to a blacksmith who knows what he's doing, and it, it's a very intricate and complicated process. And I don't know enough about who's making guns. Are they are they getting? I'm sure that surely they're getting some from France and England or you know some other European nation. The guns are coming from somewhere, but the the prevalence of them, like we have in our modern day society, now there's just no comparison. But I guess my question is, would wouldn't you assume? And this is just pulling out of my ass, but my butt. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't you assume? Wouldn't you assume that uh, you know anybody that's of especially the political class or something, somebody that is well off enough? You know, to you know, be able to satisfy whatever property qualifications that are required in their state to vote, and mm. all these other things, that they would probably, especially if they lived in a rural area, have a gun. More than likely, would be my guess. So at least there was there was a, probably some culture of individual ownership of firearms for purposes other than just malicious service. Certainly. So the, I, and I'm just like thinking of the, the kind of the social context in which something like an individual's, you know, the, the people bearing arms, like that, that would seem to be a critical part of like, you know, historicizing that language. You're saying that it's just sort of like an incidental part of society. Of course, they would put it's that already in there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has it's a dual purpose. You know what I mean? It's like the gun has a purpose for militia service and the gun probably had a purpose for everyday life. Certainly. I'm not going to disagree too hard with you again because I, I would have to look at probate records. I would have to look at census records, property records like and, and come up with some sort of like <laughs> compilation of who's got guns and who doesn't. But once I do that in my imaginary world, I would want to go do the same thing in England uh-huh. and say, who's got guns in England? Sure. Because I don't know that this, this private ownership of guns translates really well across the Atlantic. So when you say, yes, individual ownership of guns is just part of society, my question might be why. Well, I think yeah. property ownership would have a lot to do with it. You Certainly. Know, the, the availability of individual but rights. But where are they property. getting the property from? Well, sure, they're stealing yeah. it. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. of course, like, again, that's a precondition of the whole thing. You know exactly. What I mean? like, when you talk about individual ownership of guns, you have to go back to the idea of why do you need a gun to begin with? And, of course, you need it for shooting the bear that's rustling through sure. your ki- kitchen at 3 a.m., but most of the time these folks are carrying guns because they are... They, they're using the gun in a violent context. Let's flip it. Like, if you could imagine a just society to where you know Native Americans had the capacity to get guns at the same rate as, as you know, say whites would, wouldn't mm-hmm. you see the argument for why Native Americans say we need a right to bear arms? You know, I mean, you can't take our arms from us. We we need this to to secure ourselves from from invasion. And and the argument for the, or or you know, you, you see what I mean? I, I absolutely agree with you. And as humans, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, Native Americans and whites and blacks. Then again, the kind of the liberal argument for what, what I think would be a, a, a compelling, defensible case for the Second Amendment would be in saying we are all human beings. The human world involves the use of force. We need to protect ourselves, and we need to d- protect ourselves from tyrannical governments in particular. Like that's a major threat to human beings. Um, that's a, a, a good foundation. Whether or not that was the specific foundation of anybody that's writing that, you know, Second Amendment is kind of neither here nor there for me. But the the moral value of the truth of it, whether we would want that. Whether we're past that, 
that's kind of what that hinges on for me. Certainly. I, I'll say I think the when you read the Second Amendment, you have to come to three conclusions. One, militias matter and the context of militias, the historical context of militias matter. Mm. Second of all, individual gun, under, gun ownership is absolutely tied to racial antagonism and thirdly sometimes the the, the concept of in every sense certainly certainly not but i'm saying the third uh, use of guns or the third thing you have to keep in mind when you're reading the second amendment is that it is an incidental part of life it is absolutely a natural right and that is there as well i think all of these three things are kind of like circling each other like uh, molecules or whatever yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. it's hard to pin any of them down that's good i'm gonna go back and ask you a question you were talking about, it kind of ties into what we were getting at just now, that, that there's an egalitarian sense of of gun ownership or republicanism, whatever you want to call it, uh, of, of people are owning guns because they want to stand against the government it, or and defend themselves if they need to. And I agree with that. My question is, this is a book about the Second Amendment, and the people who wrote the Second Amendment were not these people you're talking about. The average Joe that maybe has a very basic understanding of Locke or something like that and believes in the natural right of owning a gun for self-defense, not for racist purposes, not for militia purposes, but just because they want to believe it. Yeah, I got you. I believe that. However, they're not the ones that wrote the Second Amendment. So how seriously can we take that, that ideal – in terms of reading well, the context literally of they didn't write the second amendment but yeah. but it's like the reason that i think um madison and others felt hard pressed to put in a, a bill of rights is because they understood that without something like that um you're not going to get the support from the sort of the, the anti-federalist uh you know the persuadable anti-federalist that would be essential for the, the survival of sort of the constitution but does it matter that people like james madison uh, and others, I forget the exact number, how many of the uh, the delegates are, are slaveholders, but does it matter that many of the people who are writing this document are slaveholders? Does that come into Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, I mean, much of the... Con- were we talking about the Constitution or the Second Amendment? I'm, I'm talking about the whole thing, but specifically the Second Amendment. If we're going to engage with this egalitarian ideal of gun ownership as a natural right, we also have to look at the people who wrote... Yeah. The, the Second Amendment specifically may have owned enslaved people where these egalitarians that you're talking about that are living in the north largely, like Vermont, don't. Uh-huh. Now, how, how, how much of a connection do we make between the Green Mountain Boys and James Madison? The question is our purpose. You know, I, mean, I think your, your purpose as a historian seems you know, to want to provide a sort of account from A to B. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't, I don't think that there's much of a significance in, in that account, probably. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It seems like a rhetorical, you know, like a kind of a, well, a necessary. There are all sorts of th- things that it seems like you know, Hamilton and Madison, you know, you know, it doesn't necessarily come into the Federalist Papers, but elsewhere you can say, okay, Hamilton's not a fan of Republican government. Neither of them seem to be too fond of the individual power of the states that if they could kind of wipe the slate clean and not have states to worry about, they'd probably prefer it. You know I mean, they recognize that the political culture of the day valued state government so much that they couldn't do that. Probably similar with like the language about standing armies or even things like that. They probably ideally like would prefer something like that as, as a crux of a, a strong state, but they knew they had to put those things in because the political culture had enough of that value within it. But all of that isn't even like to me kind of the, the question. The question is, is like, is this is this you know um, amendment obsolete? Mm-hmm. Like that that really is kind of the crux of the question, and that has to do with who are we? You know what what are our rights, our true rights, and what aren't? And this might not be a true one, right? Yeah. But I think that that's the ground upon which one could actually evaluate the relevance 
you know, whether or not it's, it makes sense, you know, as I think the, the, the final sentence of Schusterman's book says, that the Second Amendment doesn't make sense anymore. And I know mm-hmm. he's being a little cheeky there and saying that we can't understand the Second Amendment because we don't understand the history. But I think mm-hmm. there's also the argument there that this doesn't make sense. It's not good for us anymore. Let's move past it. Yeah. So you think, and this is a question for both of you, you think Schusterman's making a fundamentally anti-Second Amendment, anti-gun argument? I think he's implying it. You think so? Yeah. I agree. I, that's the way I read it. Maybe that's, I'm projecting like my own, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know that I could answer one way or the other, but maybe we could build on that question and say, is the Second Amendment irrelevant now if we if we if the three of us happen to be the guys that were appointed to sit down and rewrite the constitution or or recreate the government of the u.s we that would be a conversation that would take weeks we're not going to have that whole conversation let's just focus specifically okay (laughs) (laughs) neil has a manifesto he's ready um let's say we we're all sitting at a table we're reworking the constitution we come to the part about guns you asked the question earlier, Patrick. Where do we go from here? Do you have any sort of indication? Well, first of, first of all, part of me resists the, the basis of the question. Like, if we were the triumvirate able to just, at will, rewrite the Constitution, uh, then that kind of... that. that it's just a it's just a scenario. No, no constitution. Exactly. Would you wish for? Would you it's, wish for a constitution that had this in it or not? Well, I'm, I think I'm going to try to answer the the first question. I, your question your question is a good one. But if we were if we were up for some sort of revisions of the Second Amendment, if 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 that was on the table, um, this is not just a, a theoretical question, right? We've got. You know, this goes straight to the heart of the culture wars. You know, fully half the country and more would would see it in some ways absolutely rightly as the grossest form of tyranny to try to try to take the Second Amendment back. Say no, you don't get to. You know, we're we're actually not only going to revoke the Second Amendment. But we're actually going to disarm citizens. We're actually going to do that. Mm. Um, I don't know. Then on the other side, you've got quite a few people, um, mostly on the liberal side of the culture wars, who would say, "Absolutely, that this that that's what we got to do." Um, we've got we've like we've we've got to become more like Western Europe, right, where the right to bear arms is severely curtailed to non-existent. Um, I think we've got to work with that reality and work within that reality. So, I mean, practically speaking, I I argue with this a lot, and not just with not just with uh, pro Second Amendment conservatives, but also with li- liberals and libertarians who who say, "Oh no, there's 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 no way we can do anything about it. Just throw up your hands." You know, gun, you know, uh, gun control is a complete fool's errand, mm. right? I think I think that's that that's an overstatement. There are all sorts of ways in which we can and should uh, regulate these things, as uh, you know, indeed, as one needs to regulate anything anything else. It's a po- there's always the possibility that we're going to overplay, and our regulation will feed the very problem we're trying to solve. But of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't ever try to regulate anything. So things like uh, a national database 
of folks who have been uh, institutionalized, uh, say in the past five years, 10 years, should those people be allowed to own guns? Um, uh, should felons be allowed? And then this also goes straight to the heart of, you know, I used to work in, uh, uh, I used to work down in one of the main ghettos of the San Francisco Bay Area, where the richest people in the neighborhood were drug dealers, and where, you know, one of my students, you know, dies by gunfire during, uh, during the school year. Nevertheless, as horrific as that kind of an environment is, and you hear conservatives all the time, not all conservatives, but many conservatives crowing about Democrat-run cesspools and, you know, the south side of Chicago and this and that and the other thing. Um, alongside that, you've also got the phenomenon of the mass shootings, right? And generally, it's the mass shootings are not happening in the ghetto. The mass shootings are happening in the suburb, yeah. on the college campus, you know, in the school, you know, and not 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 generally uh, in a school in a super deprived area. So we've got we've we've got a lot of moving parts here. I would say, absolutely, we need to we we need to find some way to address this. Um, the drug uh, the drug wars are, are are of course a big problem here. Um, if we could find a way to uh, legalize most classes of drugs. Uh, we would cut gangsters and street gangs out of the business, and that would go a long way towards solving the kind of problems yeah. that we see, you know, blighting the, blighting the front pages all the time. So I think that there are certain incremental steps that we can do, and I know a lot of people would be against a national database of, you know, felons or people who have been institutionalized recently or, you know, other classes of people who you know, a, a majority of people can agree, uh, maybe that person should be deprived of the right to bear arms, uh, you know, for all of our sakes. Um, but no, I would not try to, I would, I, I don't think that it would be a realistic or a viable or a, a wise option to try to uh, tinker with the deep machinery uh, mm. in, the, in the way that we're talking about. So don't get rid of the Second Amendment, but regulate guns a bit more strictly. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I more or less agree with that. I, I might tinker with some of the language. What do you say, Neil? Yeah, I mean, I'm not wedded to like the, some of the worst writing that I've ever read in the Constitution. It's like <laughs> atrocious. Yeah. Like atrocious. But I mean, the the again back to the the notion: of, Do we think that human beings have a right to defend themselves yeah. against their government. Yes. Like, yeah, and, I gotta, and I with violence. They you know do. what I mean? Like, like the, and because if you think that that's right, that you need to, uh, a free society would need to provide for the actual exercise of that right. So it allowed them to have the, the tools of that, tools that could be abused in the ways that you were mentioning. And that's, that's where, and I, I think that, again, you, to, to, even, even to, to dip into regulating in the language that, you know, you're using, Padraig, of we... You know, if we regulated this, to me, there's no intelligible we in in the American regime. I mean, unless that we is the ruling class, then that's not me. In some fundamental sense, both its values, its interests, it's not me. You know, so if that we gets to control whether or not, you know, I 
or, or, or my Wii, right, can possess firearms, they're not going to want me to have firearms. Right? They want to crimp. So, so, and, and the moment that you, you uh, take away from the individual, or from, from, from the, even the political culture, the notion that the individual has a right. And yeah, maybe we can tinker around the edges at some point of like somebody is literally mad, you know what I mean, or, or something mm. like that. that. That's fair, you know what I mean? But as, as a principle, as like, what are we going to operate on? What kind of fundamentals here? I think it, 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 it's not only kind of a, you know, uh, maybe a historical relic that we just can't toss out, but my, my, my interest is that is it a truth? Is there a truth in it? That there's a real value to that thing. This, this coercive capacity that the individual needs to have access to to secure something real about their rights that exist in the world. Like, that's kind of the interesting kind of theoretical question for me. I mean, I, I believe we live kind of in a world where it is kind of seemed funny when you imagine, like, okay, when I was growing up, I had, like, a 12-gauge and a 22, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, what am I going to do, you know, resisting, you know, drones and this, that, and the other that can come at me now? Of course, that's kind of farcical, right? But there's something kind of symbolic, <laughs> About maybe maybe it just shows that we're we're past the the possibility of freedom, and then maybe we need to just reckon with that. I don't know. But if we're going to go along with like you know sort of the, the the notion that you can have a consensual government or something approaching it, I think it's a contradiction in terms. But if we're going to keep playing that game, you know what I mean? Then we then you'd have to have that. You'd have to have that. Yeah. So it seems like we all agree on some form of gun ownership as, as being a natural right or. You know, be wrong to take it away uh-huh. in some way. Do automatic weapons fall within the purview of the Second Amendment? I say no. I say that from any basic sort of historical context, it's clear that the, the founding fathers who didn't know what electric light and washing machines were would show up in 2023 and be like, okay, hold the phone. That guy over there with an AK-47 and an AR-15 and all that yeah. sort of stuff, that's not at all what we had in mind when we said an individual could bear arms. I just think that that is true. <laughs> what do you guys think? In terms of individual gun ownership, it seems kind of dangerous for everybody to be running around with automatic weapons. It's true, but here I think I would side with Neil. I, I, where would we draw that line? And what will the next iteration of a, of, uh, a technology of deadly force be? Um, it's important to understand we're not the final iteration. Uh, it's true that our founders couldn't have uh, imagined <laughs> uh, rocket-propelled grenade launchers and, mm. and, and things like this. I, I might I might draw the line at a civilian having one of those, mm-hmm. but. The short an- my short answer is no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to universally ban automatic weapons. I am surprised. Well, I mean, I get, I'm it, open it, to the counter arguments, but I, I, I've, I've heard too much of the kind of, well, where are we going to draw the line? Like, how, yeah. how do you distinguish between a semi-automatic and an automatic? And I, I'd, I'd want to hear a lot of more, a lot of arguments before. Okay. Before before coming down on on your side. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. So I think that there's kind of two routes to take. So it's like the one route if we're going to assume that a state exists. Yeah. If, and if, if that's the and if we're creating a constitution, I guess that's the assumption. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're creating a state, some some government to rule with that state. Yeah. You know, put into law. Uh, but um, so if that's the case, then I would say the individual should have whatever powers that the, the government should have. Okay. 
So if you're going to give the government automatic weapons, you're going to have to let the individual have automatic weapons. I, I'm clearly the only statist in this group. <laughs> because otherwise, what, what no, becomes... No, no. I, 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 I think you and I, I... We're aligned in some ways. Yes, this is a wonderful yeah, amalgam yeah. of like, uh, yeah. Yeah, agreement and disagreement here. Uh, no, but I mean... But, yeah, so I, I would go to where, like, well, let's try to destroy those sorts of powers. They're not good for us. Let's, let's try to do away with them if we can. But if they exist, you would need to equalize them. Otherwise, the people that have them are going to be able to tyrannize those that don't. Okay. So if I build a tank in my garage with utterly no regulations on, on the way I've designed it, SWAT team can't come up and can't show up on my property and take that away. Can't or shouldn't? Both. Well, I mean, I, I would say they should. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird should and shouldn't because we're already with the assumption that this state exists, and I would say that's a shouldn't. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean, but yes, if you're going to say that the state is a good, you know what I mean, and, and but you're also going to say I want individuals to have liberty. You're not going to have that if that state has such overwhelming force over you that it can make you do things you don't want to do. Uh, okay. I don't know that you're going to get very far with your AR-15 and your homemade tank against the standing army that the state has. I'm also trying. Uh, like, when when you're saying that you're not sure if there's a we there, yeah. Like we, uh, one of the things that I perhaps naively try to you know hearken back to is that you know within living memory there have been uh, there have been places and 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 you know local communities in which. I mean, this would have been true where in the village my father grew up in in Ireland. This would have been true in you know, my uncle growing up in Australia. Like, if if you're a young 15-year-old and getting out of hand on the far side of town, and your parents are nowhere to be found, but somebody knows who you are, and if if you get out of line far enough, you're 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 going to get slapped upside your head, and then you wouldn't even dream of taking it back. And, oh, you know. Mr. Joe Bob, you know, just slapped me upside my head. Then your dad's going to slap you upside your head again for being so stupid, for kind of hopefully re reinforcing the lesson. There's a that function that that a militia, I think, probably more effectively played. I know that more you know archival work would be would be necessary to really demonstrate that, but more effective than putting down putting down a rebellion was that just. Um, internal self-policing of a, of a particular tight-knit community. It's like, so if, if I'm a if I'm a part of a part of a community, and my neighbor is building a tank in the garage, um, if my neighbor is some sort of mad scientist and this is just some kind of you know <laughs> freaky science project or whatever, I'd probably be okay with it. But what if I don't have a good relationship with with, with this neighbor? And this neighbor is not much of a mad scientist, but I know this this neighbor has all sorts of uh, you know, God and Trump the only way signs in the mm. front yard. Um, you know, I, I, I think I would have the, the right and the obligation to be concerned. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I know it's... It might, be, it might be contradictory to be a hard no to somebody uh, building a tank in their garage versus being on the fence or, or or okay with automatic weapons. A lot of my friends in Turkey or, or, or Europe would be horrified to hear me say that. But there does seem to be a, you know, a category difference between those two things for me. I, I just want to bring out something that you brought to mind there that I think is really, really important, which is that 
the militia is an, an, a social institution, and that's that's uh, part of the lifeblood of civic life. And one of the, I think, compelling charges that the Anti-Federalists place against the Constitution, and you hear this from Henry, um, Patrick Henry, you hear this from Sentinel and some of the others, I think Sentinel. And I remember encountering it in a couple of different Anti-Federalist papers. Anyway, the idea that the moment that you start centralizing power taking it away from sort of the roots that through benign neglect had been, you know, grown um, in, in, in sort of the colonies and in the revolutionary period. As people stop exercising their liberty, they're not going to understand it anymore, and it's going to snuff out, I th- what I think maybe it was Jefferson's term, I, the, the spirit of liberty is, is sort of the phrase. That like, that in order to have liberty, you don't even, you don't just need words on paper. You need a, a life of habit, you know, that has, has instilled instilled within you not only sort of the value of it but how to use how to how to secure like a, a society that's going to preserve that liberty and that's one of the important um, predictions that the anti-federalists make is that with the centralization you're going to you're going to divorce power so much from people that they're not going to they're not going to know their own liberty anymore they're going to become ignorant you know what i mean and it really it's it's pretty spot on if you ask me and one of the big problems that, and why the second amendment seems so insane to us because we're a bunch of walking bellies that just you know go you go and watch our televisions and we you know we eat at our fast food and that's mm-hmm. like kind of life for us yeah. it's stupid to have these walking bellies walking around with an automatic weapon yeah right it's another consideration to imagine a sort of you know an idealized citizen you know of the militia having access to a comparable amount of firepower as you know, the, the state might have. And with the shift away from the militias, I think there's a, 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 an impoverishment of the, the sort of the social fabric um, that, again, I wouldn't want to do away with the Second Amendment. I would want to see the Second Amendment as a call to hearken back to let's become a kind of people that would be responsible enough to protect themselves. So yeah, I, I, I yeah again, I don't have a statement about the the, um, the the tanks necessarily, but it's like I think that's a critical part that again I wish I wish could have come out in the in the book of sort of the contribution of the militia to the social fabric. It was alluded to in that like oh you know it was often a drinking party or whatever in the north where it was like a slave patrol in the south. Well, it's like that's not unimportant. I mean, and that is reflective of a political culture. You know, like like Tocqueville you know describes about like you know you you need the habits of heart to sustain democracy, and he thought the township form of government. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember directly, you know, a conversation. I'm sure there's something about militias in um, in democracy in America, but there's so much discussion about civic associations in general and just, like, the tighter-knit the engagements there are between the people, the more they care for one another, the more they're going to notice the guy that's got the automatic weapon or the, they're trying to build the tank. And it's kind of a... It, it creates a social... A certain, certain institutions can create social fabrics that can be healthy to allow people freedom, and others not. And I think we've... The Constitution has really taken away sort of the agency away from people in a way that's made them much less capable to act responsibly with liberty. In a lot of political science literature, like, like you look like classically, like you know, Putnam's Bowling Alone is sort of like pointing out, just chronicling all of the ways in which we don't engage with one another. And that was written in 2000 before, you know, even social media age. But since then, you know, like the amount of loneliness, you know, that, that exists now, it's like it's an epidemic, you know, really in American life. And I, I think that you can you can trace it back to the Constitution. I can I see the the um, the shift that happens in in sort of the the, the emphasis on militias and going away from it eventually because of the centralized and capacity to create a standing army which isn't really delved into here it's you, you talked about the you know the, the the militias are there but it's also there's this whole infrastructure for a standing army to get created and it does eventually get created and um yeah that all contributes i think to our sort of death of community 
powerful words. <laughs> Long words. <laughs> <laughs> many, many words. <laughs> do uh, do we have any final thoughts that we want to include, or do we want to wrap things up? No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you, Neil, Good for your, your hospitality. Yeah.